Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today, we continue our elections coverage and here with me over Zoom is Robert Barnes. He is a constitutional civil trial and criminal tax lawyer who prides himself on defending the underdog. He is a leading voice for the fight for free speech, having defended the Covington case, kids case, and Alex Jones. Uh, so we have a lot to discuss today uh, from free speech uh, to the recent elections. So Mr. Barnes, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, why don't we just start a little bit of, about your personal background. So for those unfamiliar with you, you've started from a pretty difficult beginning with personal tragedies affecting your family from a very young age, but you managed to overcome these challenges by uh, attaining scholarships, first to a prep school in Tennessee and then to Yale University. However, you quickly became disillusioned with the university and in particular because of the elitist admission policies and other uh, various issues. So would you mind giving us a, a little bit of background about yourself, uh, your experiences over the years? Sure, yeah. So the uh, family's originally from Rhode Island and New Hampshire. Uh, the Barnes family line goes back to the Bill of Rights days where they voted against the original constitution because it did not include a Bill of Rights at that point. They were part of the Rhode Island holdouts uh, until a Bill of Rights was passed. Uh, the uh, But then my, my parents moved to Tennessee, Southeast Tennessee, Chattanooga. I was born about five years after that. My older siblings were born in like Wisconsin, Michigan and other places. Uh, and then my younger sibling, of course, was born in, uh, in, in, Ted, in Chattanooga as well. So I grew up there. Uh, my father ran into economic difficulties because it was the beginning of the credentialing of Americans, American society. So even though he had a college degree, even though he had uh, you know good training in accounting, he had never gone through and got his certified public accounting license certification. And, be, and because that was going to be a very hard thing to do mid-career, mid-life, he was always either overqualified or underqualified for almost every job. So he ended up with these sort of marginal diff jobs that had difficulty attached to them. And he tended to speak out whenever he thought he saw something wrong. And the problem was the economic space he was in, he was often working for people that were not the best people to work for. So he would get fired repeatedly, end up being a newspaper delivery man. Um, uh, died when I was uh, uh, 11, about 12 days from my 12th birthday, to be precise. Uh, and then my mom sort of uh, became a bookkeeper and Social Security for widows and orphans is what uh, kept us economically afloat. Uh, so went to a religious school, evangelical school, the fundamentalist tradition for many years because my mom had become attached to that particular denominational, I don't know if denomination is the right word, but uh, yeah, sort of religious framework. And then got a scholarship to the Macaulay School, great private prep school. And it used to be, a, it still is predominantly a boarding school. I was one of the few day students uh, by the Brock Candy family, uh, which is a, a family that has a bunch of ties to uh, uh, politics too. They'd been the uh, members of the family had been congressmen and senators and would be presidents. Uh, so that was always an interesting experience. Then got a scholarship to Yale. Thought I wanted to go to Georgetown, learn politics and all the rest, but Yale gave me more money than Georgetown did. So I went to Yale. Uh, and Yale was intriguing at the time. The uh, I thought it would be like in Tennessee, there was a program called Governor's School where the governor set up a program for the summer for basically working class kids from all across the state to go somewhere for a month and, there, and to study something in particular. So you had the governor's school for international studies. You had a governor's school for the arts, governor's school for writing, all this stuff. And our governor's school for international studies, I met all these great, fascinating, working middle class kids from all across the state. 
We were there when they were commemorating the Civil Rights Museum at the, the old Lorraine Motel. They were converting in Memphis because that's where we went to the for a month. We got to see Maya Angelou, got to see Jesse Jackson speak in a, in a black church in the same in the, in the same church Martin Luther King gave his last ever speech. And so it was a great I thought that's what Yale's going to be like. Uh, you know, the Yale's going to be uh, just a national, international version of my governor's school program. And I get there and discover, uh, nope, uh, no, it's basically kids that have been trying their whole lives to get to the Ivy League from the New, from New York, from the East Coast and the West Coast. Everything in between is kind of flyover country unless you're in Chicago. Um, and so the cultural disconnect was massive and I was totally unprepared for it, though. I found the first month great because I never went to class and uh, discovered alcohol. So this was, you know, so that that part of it was great. But I, I realized the disconnect. I remember I went in to watch a because uh, I was there in 1990. Uh, seven was the I'm sorry 1992 was when I went there so that fall there was like a presidential debate I went to the cafeteria on what's called old campus where all the freshmen get together and instead they had friends on and I was like what so the and I didn't even understand friends I understand a little better now but it was such a New York people you know people don't have economic problems somehow and they just sit around and tell funny stories or do funny things I didn't connect to it when I was an 18 year old kid uh, and so the, uh, so that whole dynamic was like, a sh- it was like, okay, they're not that interested in intellectual subjects. Exactly. I expected this to be an intellectual haven. It really wasn't Yale political union was interesting in part, but it was mostly ambitious people who had grown up watching West wing. And it was the beginning of science the, the professional class takeover of American politics was beginning then. Uh, I was a I ran the Yale Political Union uh, intern program in the summer for speakers in Washington, D.C. that summer. And it was more uh, more educationally about how everything was just about personal ambition. Nothing was about principle that I could see for the most part. And uh, nothing was about and a few people had a, a diverse life experience that could matter. And it was the, it, it was becoming increasingly clear we were about to start an age and era where we were going to be governed by a professional class privileged elite that was completely disconnected from ordinary people and whose intellect I completely distrusted. Used to be my joke about Henry Kissinger. I don't trust his moral compass, but I trust his intellectual capabilities. Watching my classmates be the future of power was deeply unsettling because I didn't trust their moral compass or their intellectual competence uh, to make good decisions because I thought they needed more life, diverse life experience to make that meaningful. Uh, so, but while I was at Yale, they decided I used to go to the Yale public, uh, the Yale library and because the Yaleys didn't know it, but that whole library had been built by Masons who had been discriminated against in a labor strike, including leading to several of their fellow coworkers dying in the, at the end of the 19th century. So they had to get their revenge. They etched into the sculptures inside Yale library, a bunch of sculptures that are mocking Yaleys and Yaleys sit there underneath it, having no clue that it's there a hundred years later. And I found it great. I was like, this is my perfect environment. But I went around and I picked up the Yale Alumni Monthly Magazine. And they were announcing in the monthly magazine that they were going to basically get rid of need-blind admissions, get rid of need-based financial aid. And a school that was already uh, disproportionately born, uh, you know, of well, to quote Jesse Jackson, the ri- it isn't the best and the brightest. Yale is the richest and the whitest. Uh, and so the uh, uh, that kind of language. And uh, but that's what they were. They were going to make it worse. They were going to amplify the problem, uh, the cultural disconnect I personally experienced while there. And so I decided to form a protest group. Uh, poor at Yale. Pay. Oh, that was somebody. That was a buddy of mine's. Uh, Real diversity was the other name. We had like three different names. 
Uh, and it was a combination of people politically from all over the ideological spectrum, but we all came from lower income backgrounds. So Nick Adamo, who had grown up homeless on the streets of New York City, whose favorite thing to do was to sit at the table at Yale and just go to a random lunch table and start telling them stories about what it's like to be five years old and pray that the emergency room has enough extra seats that you can sleep in that night. Um, just to watch their horror or their shock or their surprise or not know how to connect to them. Um, and an, another buddy, Sam Ingersoll, uh, who uh, grew up uh, you know, poor in the Midwest, had tons of great stories. Uh, the, there was a joke by the Yale rumpus, which was like the, the onion of Yale, that he was uh, uh, he was on higher up on the list than the Yale president, that he was like three, three times they passed over Sam in order to get someone else. So all these great guys. We start a little organization, start a protest movement. And the, the editor of the Yale Daily News, Dave Lionheart, now a economics editor at the New York Times, loved our story. So he put us on the front page of the Yale Daily News. What I didn't know at the time was, and it was, it was educational about everything in the future. What David knew, knew was that the, Yale, the entire Yale administration, they read the Yale Daily News daily to get a sense of what was happening on campus. That was their only real connect to what was happening on campus. Most Yale students did not read the Yale Daily News. And so uh, it often, frankly, was not reflective of what was happening on campus. But he put us on the front pages, so he made us look like this huge protest movement when there was like 12 of us. But, you know, he did the photo shot and everything else. Great. <clears throat> and we were great at distributing pamphlets and the rest. So we could look like we were big when we were really small. And so we ended up, they ended up getting nervous and terrified. They had a meeting that I was actually 20 minutes late to as a 19-year-old kid. And I walk in and every single dean of every part of Yale University is there, including the graduate school divisions. And I was like, wow. And I was sitting at the top of the table. I don't know whether it was intended or not, but that's where I sat down. So the, I was like, and I look back at myself and wonder, where did that kid's confidence come from? Because I sit down and just go boom, 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 boom. Um, and, the, and I'll never forget, one of the Yale deans said, money doesn't talk at Yale, money whispers talking about admissions policies for legacy students, et cetera, which I thought was even perfect. I was going to steal that quote. Uh, so we, the, the, we built it and built it and built it in this movement. And their conclusion, and this is how this, I learned so much about politics and power in that two and a half years at Yale, uh, but particularly that one year, uh, where what they did is they, okay, first they were going to try to buy off the press by saying, yes, we see this issue seriously. We're going to have serious meetings. We're going to pay attention to it. Then they create a committee. The whole goal of the committee is to really bury the issue, but make it look like there's an independent inquiry and meaningful investigation. And then they buy off the key people individually. So they pitched me. They said, you know, don't you want your kids to have these benefits? And I was like, no, I don't want my kid to get any ill over a poor kid just because he's my kid. That's, that's horrendous. That's why I'm protesting. Uh, and then the next pitch was, well, you could get to Yale Law School. You know, things could things could go very well for you in life if you just take this path. And I found that morally horrendous. Uh, so I decided I realized where it was going, that they were going to bury this. So I decided I was going to leave and protest because nobody ever leaves Yale. And definitely not some poor kid from Tennessee leaves Yale. It's it's the big prime. You know, some of these kids have been working for this since they were four. You know, it was like like a young Tiger Woods. I'm going to get the Yale or the Ivy League. Uh, and I'm leaving in protest of it, but it got attention. My thought was, if I leave in protest, they're going to force to be have to deal with this, uh, and it will reignite the old lefty conscience of some of the professors on campus. 
And that's what happened. Uh, they started sharing the article in you know English classes and history classes and political science classes. The old professors remember who used who they used to be in the 1960s, and it built enough momentum that within a year, Yale announced they would not make any change to need blind admissions. They weren't they wouldn't discriminate against someone because they were poor, and they would guarantee 100% need based financial aid. So that if you were poor and you got into Yale, then they would make sure you could afford it. Uh, and that was all because of leaving in protest. And so that, and, and, if, and if Yale had been able to succeed, it was going to cascade across the Ivy League. Uh, because if Yale could get away with it, and it was just too tempting. It was just easy. It was all this money was going to financial aid. And they were having to set aside, they were doing merit-based applications when it'd be a lot easier if you could you know, tag on maybe two, 3% more legacies or just people who would buy in. Say, hey, look, well, we can get your kid into Yale if you're willing to give a $1 million donation. I mean, that's why the Yale uh, gym looks like a church from the outside. It's because many decades ago, they convinced this old lady to give him a bunch of money. And she said, I'll only give it for a church. They said, okay. So on the outside, it looks like a church, but inside it's the gym. Uh, so I mean, this, this is the way it operates. They raised so much money off of saying, hey, would you like to help poor kids come to Yale? And then they wanted to divert those monies to their pet projects, uh, to the bloated aristocracy that was taking over university campuses and to whatever you know, little building they want to build for somebody. So uh, it was very educational, left there, went back home to UTC. Uh, it was my home school. I had a great populist professor there, Larry Engel, uh, who, found, who called himself the founder of the Redneck Anarchist Club, who taught me about a populist version of left. Like he would be described today as on the left, uh, but the, he's a very populist, uh, idiosyncratic version of that. Because we would read about, we read about all the populism. We read about Gary Wills, Nixon Agonistes. You know, like he would call himself a conservative. He's just a very different kind of conservative. He means to conserve, conserve ways of life, conserve traditions, conserve certain communities and constituencies. Uh, that's why he'll usually end up on the left. Very anti-war came from the William Appleman Williams tradition. So the uh, he taught me a lot uh, and helped really frame a lot of my intellectual infrastructure, if you will, the architecture I would approach life. Then got a fellowship to the University of Wisconsin Law School where they were teaching law in action, which was the idea was don't just learn the black letter law. Uh, you need to learn the the principle and the policies behind the law and the practical social application of the law. People like Mark Gallanter were there doing data analysis like, well, you know, uh, as we've saw and seen with the recent election case. Is the explanation that a court gives the actual explanation or is it the pretext? Is it the excuse? Uh, well, you can study that in part by looking at data history and looking at the history of how courts have made decisions in a wide range of areas. So like that's when I was at Wisconsin Law School, I, I called something in torts the railroad rule, which was you figured out that from 1875 to 1925, whatever the legal rule used to be, it changed when they needed to help the railroads. Uh, and so, you know, the 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 real rule of torts was, well, there's a railroad rule case that means railroad wins. However, you get there. It's uh, going from the conclusion rather than reaching a conclusion. Uh, so uh, but it was fantastic. The experience was great. A bunch of working middle class kids were there, particularly during that time frame due to the dean of admissions. Uh, and then from there left and started uh, the practice of law, though, while I was in law school, did a uh, clerkship for an Indian tribe, which was fantastic. I, I still think their means and methods of justice are leap years ahead of ours. They the, got to meet with the elders, learned about all kinds of intriguing things about what your dreams might mean in, in their Native American tradition, the Ho-Chunk tradition in that case. Uh, then clerked for a big corporate law firm. 
Uh, and I'll never forget what the, uh, the lawyer said at the end at my exit interview, with, which there was zero doubt about this. She said, Robert, I think you'll be a, a great lawyer, just not a great corporate lawyer. Uh, and I was like, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> no surprise there. Uh, as soon as I got out of law school, worked for a street lawyer. Like a John, if people want to understand the law, I always say read John Grisham's books. They're really a, they'll give you a real sneak peek at the real life of a lawyer in those different areas of practice. Uh, and we took every case in off that came in off the street, literally, hence street lawyer. Then worked for a public interest law firm. So in big banks, we were doing subprime lending before subprime lending litigation was cool. We were doing that almost 10 years before, 2001, 2002, 2003. So in for the old folks who were getting scammed by these deals, by these front operations, using holder in due course to steal massive amounts of money on Wall Street. And representing victims of domestic violence throughout Southeast Tennessee, small towns, big cities, rural areas, urban areas, suburban areas, you name it. I uh, did that for about a year and a half, two years, then went to work for one of the top plaintiff's lawyers in the country uh, out of Wisconsin. And, you know, had a big lion's head as his ring. You know, I mean, this guy was like right out of the King of Torts, John Grisham novel. Uh, but, uh, you know, but he taught me a lot about about the practice of law in a short time period, then hopped over to a boutique law firm of a buddy of mine. Uh, and then went out on my own about almost 10 years ago now and uh, did whatever cases I liked, whatever I found interesting, make make enough money to support the team of people that work for me. Uh, but mostly the goal was to build, you know, to do cases, represent underdog clients for people that I like for causes that I like. Uh, I don't take a case I don't like. I don't represent a client I don't like. I don't take on a cause I don't like. I don't advocate for something I don't agree with. Uh, I wanted to be in a position to be able to use, to leverage the law to help the underdog and achieve a better sense of justice. So I'm looking at your website right now. You said it's a lawyer, giant slayer, and legal crusader. And you said, I'm Robert Barnes. I fight for the underdog and win the impossible. So how do you define an underdog per, per se? So I, the two, two of the very famous cases you recently defended, well, one is Alex Jones. The other is the Covington kids. And for me, the underdog, everybody I represent, even if they have money, even if they have means, even if they have prominence, even if they have power, they have a lot less money, means, prominence and power than the people coming after them collectively. And so that's what that's the thread that ties in all of my clients cases. The I've never represented somebody big against somebody little. So I've never represented a landlord against a tenant, an employer against an employee. I just avoid those as often and as much as I possibly can. Now, I do do some outside general counsel work where I try to negotiate outcomes in those instances. But for litigation, uh, I'm, I'm always representing uh, with almost without fail, someone who has less power, less money, less prominence, less uh, success. Or, or less, uh, well, less influence than the uh, opposing side, at least collectively. So, so in, sorry. Yeah, so I mean, they, and that's all the way through. So thus I represent Wesley Snipes, a very well-off, successful man, but against the United States government, he's probably the biggest underdog I've ever represented. So the Alex Jones, he's up against the entire institutional media. So it's, he's not so much against who he's up against inside the case. It's it, it's the entire institutional media is trying to use the case to crush him. And big tech's trying to deplatform him off of everything. They're literally trying to disappear him from the public space. Uh, and, and in that context, he's the underdog. Uh, obviously, the Covington kids, they were the underdog from day one. I see. So I, I, this is a perfect transition. Maybe we can t talk about some of those cases. I know you gave a very beautiful introduction to your personal journey, and I think we should come back to some of those discussions about campus, uh, free speech, the rise of the elitist class, and such and so on. But uh, maybe we can start with the Alex Jones case. Uh, and, and so 
where did you see as an injustice there? Uh, you briefly mentioned that the, the media institution is really trying to deplatform him and wipe him uh, from the face of the earth. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the case from your perspective? Sure. So my uh, sense was that Alex Jones was going to be the test case for who they could deplatform, who they could remove from the public square. And they were, and they were engaged in lawfare uh, to achieve that objective. And so, like, for example, almost all the people that were suing him had never complained to him during the time period at all about anything they were suing him about. That uh, They often wrote letters like a few days before they filed suit was it. And so you have a very unusual defamation claim. And it was your people filing suit who've never been talked about in many instances, people filing suit who've never complained before, never asked for a correction or retraction until the very eve of suit itself. Uh, and people suing without being able to prove any consequential damages from what they claim took place and unwilling to settle the case in any sort of reasonable manner. And so when you have that kind of approach, that suggests that they are more being used as fronts to achieve an objective of someone else more than what you would typically or expect to see in a defamation case. Just to clarify, so there are people who sued Alex Jones for, yes. for harm and defamation. Correct. So the, there's a group of them. There were some who filed in Texas. There were some who filed in Connecticut. There, at the same time, he was facing a sudden onslaught of copyright litigation out of the blue. And it was, this is a guy who goes from never being sued for 20, 20, uh, 23 out of 25 years of being on the air, uh, facing no state suits, no federal suits, to facing more than a dozen legal actions or complaints within six months from all across the country. Is, my is it view because was, he became famous because of some of his uh, uh Well, and the thing opinions. was, he, I mean, he was still, as, uh, he wasn't much more famous than he had been before. The only thing that had changed was, I thought two things had changed. One was Trump got elected and he was partially blamed for that in certain circles. But I thought the other one was, they saw, I think they, that people with degrees of power got together and lo were looking at, I think in part big tech and other people were, were wanted to, Deplatformed, start the start the, the censorship campaigns after Trump won. That they, they they never expected their platforms to be used in that way. Also, I think there was a desire of some of these platforms to build a model that would placate the Chinese government in terms of their getting influence within the within China, which was seen as the biggest growing economy. And so we already know now some of that, the Google projects that were going on about how they could manipulate algorithms to accommodate the government censorship efforts in China. Uh, I think that they wanted to employ that throughout the United States as well. And the question was, how? How do you go about doing so? Uh, and my view was that they were using Alex Jones either, you know, maybe it was purely accidental, but that just it had the fingerprints of uh, of pre-planning. Somebody doesn't go from not being sued at all to suddenly facing a dozen suits in six months, in my view. So just to quickly roll back a little bit, I, I think my like, I don't know too much about Alex Jones and certainly not as, as well as you do. But uh, he, he, he very recently appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast and, you know, started a lot of backlash. Uh, but but over the years, over the past few years, he's always been seen as this guy, you know, the Infowar guy, the the kind of the signature guy for misinformation. Right. He's the Sandy Hook denier. He's the person who said there's a, Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring from a pizza shop and things like that. So it, it seems that. He has made some ridiculous claims out there, right? Such that the, the platforms felt the need to cleanse the, the misinformation uh, in light of the 2016's harm. I think that's the institutional narrative.
But the uh, I think the real narrative of Jones is that he's probably the most significant voice on the independent populist right. Most of his audience used to be politically disengaged. 2016 changed that. And I think it, it scared people on the left that he could actually get his audience to vote. You're talking about a guy who, according to the media's own polls, 30 million Americans have a very favorable view of Alex Jones. Uh, Three million tune in every single week to watch him or listen to him. That is an extraordinary, and he's probably the most pure populist uh, person within the press space. Because here you have a guy that doesn't owe anything to any advertiser, doesn't owe anything to any donor or sugar daddy. So he's unlike pretty much everybody else in the media space. You're talking about a guy who built, who, who democratized media access by having his audience fund him by buying products that they like. And so that was revolutionary. And while he was out on what was seen as sort of out on the fringe, He's the conspiracy guy. He's the guy challenging stuff. He does funny. They make funny memes out of him. You know, he's the guy who goes on Rogan. They have fun for four hours. As long as he was that guy, the 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 establishment had no fear of him. Once he got to the point where he could help elect the president of the United States, that changed the ball game. And did, did suddenly, he, did he have that much influence? How, how does he actually connect with his his, his listeners in that? If way? you overlap his uh, the core Trump audience. With uh, Alex Jones's core audience, it's almost identical demographically and individually. <laughs> really? So that was, wow. Yeah. So they're overwhelmingly working class men between the ages of 25 and 50. Right. And what, what defines them is that they had mostly dropped out of the political process. They might have occasionally voted, but some of them had never voted. All of a sudden in 2016, they start showing up in Republican primaries voting for Trump. And then they're voting at, at record levels. And he's particularly strong in the North. Like people think of Alex Jones as sort of uh, the South or the West. His core audience is actually the working class North. Uh, so the, it was the key. So he had more influence and his audience are almost all independents. They don't consider themselves Republicans. Most of them, they don't, they're not party people. They're, you know, uh, like if they've been around, if they're old enough, they were Ross Perot people in 1992. It's that kind of mindset. People who down deep believe our systems of government are just failing us across the board. And the what was different was Jones activated them politically. Uh, Trump was the first person Jones had ever endorsed anywhere in politics in his entire 25 year career. So he went from a guy that was on sort of the libertarian right that says the system is just a crock. Don't partake, don't participate, just fight and oppose and inform uh, to a guy who was like, hey, you know what? I think we can take over the presidency if we leverage our audience. Um, and he helped. And at least in the views of his critics. They saw him as actually achieving that objective. PEA Frontline even did a whole piece on it about how Jones, that how Trump was paralleling Jones. Like that Jones would say something, then Trump would say it. And they were on parallel paths, not only with their audience, but with methods of public persuasion. The other factor with Jones is that because he had been sort of caricatured by the, uh, the what I would call the institutional narrative, the real truth of Jones was mostly unknown. It's, it's one of the problems I, with the institutional media and with the political class. They really don't know these audiences. It's like uh, they, they know Rush Limbaugh a little bit, but my friends on the left mostly don't know who he is in the sense of they think, oh, he's just a caricature of an entertainer. He's not. It's like, no, no, no. He's, he's narrating for a, an entire audience what's happening in the world, and he is their main narrator. He's the main author of their experience from a political perspective. They don't understand that on the left because they refuse to listen to him. People on the, on the right 
can't but be exposed to the left because of how much institutional control they have over the academy, over the media, over our institutions of power, over the professional class that dominates so many parts of life. People on the left can completely ignore the right because if, if they you have to go out of your way on the left to find a Rush Limbaugh and listen to him or a Blaze or a Alex Jones or anyone else. But basically, Alex Jones's audience, while people were asleep at the wheel and the institutional powers that be, Alex Jones's audience was skyrocketing. He went from, you know, 100,000 core people to a million to all of a sudden 10 million to by 2016, it's 30 million plus. And they were just asleep at the wheel because what Jones was, his real popularity was he has a deep skepticism of those who successfully seek power. And it was, if you wanted to define Jones, it's not any of the caricatures that are applied to him. It's <clears throat> Jones's belief that you should always approach anyone who wants power and particularly those who get it with deep skepticism. So he's willing to go to great, you know, a, a further extent than I or a lot of other people would be in terms of his view of how bad these people are. But it's that core skepticism that ordinary people were what was being validated in their day to day lives. Not only are their jobs being shipped away, their, their, their lifestyles falling apart, their systems of government not protecting them. And they're seeing what Trump, uh, they're seeing Jones's narrative. You can't trust these people. These people are unreliable, come true. And for all of the criticism of Jones, in terms of which uh, theories he had that did not come to uh, fruition, there are a bunch of theories of his things that you could not explain unless you listen to Alex Jones. If you listen to Alex Jones, Jeffrey Epstein makes perfect sense. If you don't listen to Alex Jones, <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein is a total shock. Uh, and there are those kind of uh, Harvey Weinstein makes perfect sense in Alex Jones' <laughs> world, uh, makes no sense in the everyday person's world. Yeah. So the idea that you could have such pernicious, horrendous evil and that you have a guy like Epstein who has Bill Gates next to him and Bill Clinton. I mean, it's not like the guy was some marginal guy that nobody knew about. This guy was sitting at the center of all kinds of cultural, economic, political power. Uh, that has mysterious ways to how he made his money and just uh, it, all the and that the government would come to defend him on both sides. <clears throat> That's a story that, uh, in fact, I think it was somebody for the week wrote increasingly in 2020. The only way the world is predictable is if you're in, in the Alex Jones audience. And this is someone who's a critic of Alex Jones, but he's saying, look, if you're in Alex Jones's audience, what happens with the pandemic makes absolute sense that it would suddenly lead to lockdowns and control mechanisms and mandatory masks. And we can take away your job overnight and we can lock you in your home and you won't complain. And we can discriminate against churches and all. None of that makes sense before the pandemic experience, unless you're in an Alex Jones audience, then you're like, this is exactly what they're going to do. This is exactly what people in power want. So I think that's that his real uh, audience is a populist audience that's skeptical of power. Do, and, and people have highlighted the things he got wrong. But I'll tell you what Alex Jones never did get wrong. He didn't do what he didn't get weapons of mass destruction wrong. He didn't get uh, let's go to war on bogus reasons wrong. He didn't get Russiagate wrong. So there's a lot of things he got right that the powers that be the most dangerous conspiracy theories of the last 20 years have been the ones that led us into war and conflict. And that's come from the institutional media, not Alex Jones. Uh, Mr. Barnes, so much to unpack here. So I guess we can do it gradually. The first thing is uh, you said he got something right. I, I think Joe Rogan said the same thing on his Instagram. He was like, people give me a lot of flack for having him on the show. I know the guy is crazy, but there's stuff that he says is right. But, but, but the, the first question I would have for you is how do we excuse him? I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying my best to, to try to understand this. Uh, how do we defend him from, from saying stuff that 
is being picked out th- that is wrong. For example, when he says, you know, Sandy Hook or, 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 or Hillary Clinton running a pedophile ring. So, so that's the first aspect of this thing is that how do we separate the fact that some parts he is right and some parts is wrong? And, and I guess second question I have is, uh, I'm not saying the left is all pure and, and nice. And I, I recognize their systemic forces that we we're only now starting to recognize, for example, taking jobs away, neoliberalist kind of economic policy not really working. Uh, maybe New York Times is somewhat biased and in their own liberal bubble. But is there a systemic organized force plotting against Jones? I mean, that, that, that's something I'm personally not yet seen evidence so far. I'd, I'd love to hear, hear a little bit more of that. Sure. So, yeah, two different components there. So with the uh, I think with anyone, uh, they can deserve, warrant and receive criticism for mistakes that they make. Uh, And I have no problem with that. But Jones has never been Jones doesn't hold himself out as The New York Times. He holds himself out as I'm the guy that's very skeptical of those of power and I'm willing to uh, assume the worst about them and believe the worst about them and say that they are capable of it. And some of the times he'll be right. Some of the times he'll be wrong. Uh, he's been more willing to admit when he's wrong than the institutional media has. I'm yet to hear. I mean, the people that lied into what got us into Iraq war have never apologized for it, and they still have positions of power. And to give an example, I mean, the other thing is to understand Jones' own perspective. Jones, in his own deposition, said he used to go to the most extreme thing right away. And and only through the whole experience of the last three, four years did he start to realize – to find some balance. But understand if you're Jones, you're a 17-year-old kid, you start out on a little ham radio, and the first thing you believe is that the they're lying to get us into the first Iraqi war, that the incubator baby story you think is false for a wide range, because you come from this core skepticism about people in power, and you're seeing evidentiary flaws in the presentation. And then it turns out to be true. And you're one of the only, you're a 17-year-old kid in East Texas who understands more about what, what people are being lied to than CNN, the leading global world station, saying, yeah, the Kuwaitis went in and they took the little ba- incubator babies and bashed their heads on the ground. The kind of story that if you listen to, you should probably be skeptical of, but our institutional media wasn't, our senators weren't, our leading government people weren't, just a 17-year-old kid in East Texas was. Uh, and was one of the, And so if you lived his experience, you get constant confirmation from your deep skepticism of the system. You know, you're out there telling people that what happened at uh, Waco wasn't the official story. We find out later it wasn't the official story was wrong. That what happened at Ruby Ridge, what the government did, the official story was wrong. It did turn out to be wrong. So he's getting confirmation after confirmation after confirmation. Uh, And then you have 9-11 and everything associated with it. And that's what would put Jones on the public map. He was a deep skeptic of the government's narrative about 9-11. And at least parts of the government's narrative about 9-11 with books and movies, series like Looming Tower, have shown that there there were red flags in the system that were not caught for whatever reason. So from a Jones perspective, and then you have things like Operation Northwoods. So you're a 17 year old kid and you're saying, Hey, the whole system has been capable of this. They've been planting false flags and, and whatnot. And this is what you believe about the world because some of your family were in the military before and special ops, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, 1998, the government releases op- the, what was proposed back in 1960. And you see in like, I remember when I first, when Jones first told me about this, like, there's no way that's true. And then I look it up and there it is Operation Northwoods, our joint chiefs of staff, recommending to the president of the United States, then President Kennedy, that we stage false flag events and kill actual Americans so they can blame it on Cuba and invade Cuba. Uh, and that and stage it. And you're like, 
hold on a second. You have to read it like over and over and say, no, that can't be right. No. And yet and I was like, and I, I, I went and double checked. I was like, I didn't make sure this was a real document. This isn't something like somehow, but no, that's like people can Google it. Look it up. Operation Northwoods. It's insane what people in power are capable of. And that's why I like my view is, yeah, Jones is going to get some stuff wrong. We know that in advance. But I want to hear that skeptical version in the court of public opinion, because if if there's something really bad going on out there, Jones is going to be ahead of the curve at telling us about it. So I don't have to agree with him. I don't have to embrace it, but I want to at least know that perspective so I don't miss it. And you want to defend his right for for voicing those opinions and at least preserving the existence of such opinions in the public square. Exactly. So my view is we should be the guardians of accuracy, not any institutions. Okay, but people would say that, that's misinformation. He is spreading viral information. He's an anti-vaxxer. He's saying things that are hindering progress. How, how would you respond to that then? That's what the court of public opinion is for. Make that argument, make that pitch. But what I don't want is to keep people out of the public square altogether, because that's always going to net negative. Well, once to, we have to directly deplatform him, that would be yeah, exactly. a step too far. So I, was, I, I want to be able to walk into that public square and hear every opinion. And I want to be the arbiter of what's true. I want to be the arbiter of what's right. I don't want some institution. I don't want big brother to be the arbiter of what's true. And I want the big brother to be the arbiter of what's right for two reasons. One, we've learned the whole idea of free speech is that the best way to actually come to truth is an adversarial process where all the opinions are heard and the audience gets to pick what's true and what isn't. The second is whenever we've let an institution decide truth, that has never turned out well, not for truth, not for anything. Sure. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about public square, because right now, Facebook, Twitter, the social media is essentially the public square. And the public square has uh, two features that are very interesting. One is a network effect. It's it's sprawling. Everybody can have access to it. Uh, So if you have a phone, you have a laptop, you can access the public square. But another thing is they have monopoly power, right? Because it wouldn't make sense to have multiple public squares. So it wouldn't make sense if half the population is on Facebook and half half are on another service. So that's why Facebook and Twitter and these social media platforms have been so successful at consolidating their power. And I don't think even people uh, who are uh, doing antitrust litigations on the left and and, I don't even think they're saying that the public, the, the, the government should be the one dictating whether you should remove certain uh, uh, opinions on the, on, the, on the internet or not. But maybe we can dive into the legal clauses here. What, what, one is section 230, which is an important law in the Alex Jones case, uh, which, states that the, which states that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker uh, of any information provided by another information content provider. In other words, Facebook, and Twitter are not responsible for some of the content being published because they're technically considered as platforms and not media companies. Um, Correct. And I think the original idea behind Section 230 was a good one because it was necessary to allow these platforms to expand. Because I was recently on the uh, podcast with Jordan Belfort, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, I listened to that. (laughs) And and it's fascinating. I had forgot that he was the whole reason why Section 230 came about. Because oh, really? he had sued a platform back during his, uh, it was because the, it was his company, Stafford Oak, Oakmont. But they sued a uh, platform because of defamatory information that, of course, turned out not to be defamatory about Stafford Oakmont, uh, about uh, being on their platform. And he won partially that case. And a senator who hated him 
said, this is outrageous that this guy can sue a platform. We needed to start doing a law to immunize these folks. And that was the birth of Section 230. And what was good about Section 230 was we do need places where platforms can be treated as neutral platforms that are not uh, responsible for the content on their platforms. The difference was what happens when those platforms become monopolies and choose to, to become publishers. And that's what's happened over the last two, three years. And it was started really with Alex Jones. In other words, it, the, with Alex Jones was the test case. How much censorship can we get away with? And so Facebook did it. Instagram. I mean, like, I'll give an example. He got kicked off of Instagram for saying he thought Joe Biden may have, may have some mental cognitive, cognitive decline. That was before anybody was saying it. They're like, oh, that's outrageous. Joe Biden doesn't have any mental cognitive decline. Does anybody out there think Joe Biden is the same Joe Biden as he was in 2016 or 2012? There's nobody that. Again, Alex Jones ahead of the curve. That's why I want the Alex Jones perspective, because Jones is often the first guy. He, he maybe gets something totally wrong, but he also will be one of the he'll be the first guy to get certain things right. Uh, but that's what Instagram banned him for. They're like, that's outrageous fake news that you were saying there's any cognitive problem with Joe Biden, even though he was using Joe Biden's own video evidence to show it. Uh, now we all recognize it. And just because you can't hide it through, you know, 10 Democratic debates uh, when the guy is Joe 30330, you know, that routine. It's oh, it's like this is not good. So uh, but they they decided to use their monopoly. And we had a, a, a judicial resolution for this originally, the Pruneyard Doctrine in California. Uh, the case that came up to the U.S. Supreme Court where what happens when a corp because the this is not new. The corporations in the 19 teens and 1920s in mining towns is where this arose. It wasn't what got litigated, but it's where the public policy debate occurred. They're like, how do we stop unionizing in our mining towns? Well, we got to stop them from petitioning. Well, how do we do that? Oh, we just own the whole town. If we own the whole town, we can ban labor movements. We can ban public speech. We can ban public petitions. We'll own the public square and we'll decide what can be presented in that public square. And as part of that, the U.S. Supreme Court came in and said, no, no, no. If you have a monopoly over the public square, then you are now an agent of the state for First Amendment purposes. Now, of course, then it came into the private mall context. And in California, in the Pruneyard case, they said, look, if you're uh, the if you have a de facto monopoly over part of the public square in your town, then you're going to be governed by the First Amendment under the same principles. And they said a mall in the public part of the mall could not limit who does petitioning there. U.S. Supreme Court says, oh, geez, that, that makes us nervous. We're going to back out of this doctrine. And they've never followed through since. And Section 230 that was designed to help real independent platforms has now become the get out of jail free card for discriminatory publishing. And because clearly they're censoring now. And I mean, now you can't even discuss on YouTube uh, fraud in, the, in elections well, unless you fit within certain exceptions. And they, they define it so broadly, it applies to past elections. So now you can't talk about 1876, apparently, on YouTube, because that's because I, we're supposed to say there's never been fraud in the history of American presidential elections, which is just, you know, that, that that's what happens when we allow one source, Big Brother, to be the the person to govern what's true and what's not, govern what's uh, allowed to be spoken and allowed to be heard and what's not. And that's why it's very dangerous. Could we talk a little bit more about, I guess, the ideal state of um, public forum regulation? What would be your version? Because to be honest, my opinion on this has been shifting, you know, back and forth. So, for example, at the beginning of COVID-19, I looked at a lot of the information, misinformation online, and I was like, we should totally 
uh, step in and ban anything that says you, you shouldn't wear a mask or where vaccines don't work. You should totally ban those. Twitter should do that. But on the other hand, I was like, but, but wait a second. But there was a, initially an institutional failure because uh, even some of the credible sources, the Surgeon General or whatever, were saying uh, don't wear a mask. Maybe sometimes for good reasons or motivations, then we can set that aside. But But it seems that there were actually small pockets of people that were considered as misinformation in the beginning who turned out to be quite helpful because they were helping distribute certain medical facts. So uh, yes, I, I, my, my own position has been shifting on this, but it seems to me that the platforms have, have been showing good faith, right? That they've been trying to figure this out, how to regulate misinformation, even with the Hunter Biden story that came out a couple months ago. I, I, so I, I, what would be your version of, I guess, regulating or policing the, the internet? So I think it's two components there. I think my view is the First Amendment gives us manageable standards. And my argument with Twitter's lawyers several years ago when I brought suits against Twitter was you could incorporate the First Amendment into your terms of service. And the advantage is the First Amendment doesn't protect obscenity. The First Amendment does not protect child pornography. The First Amendment does not protect imminent incitement of criminal activity, such as certain kinds of terroristic planning and the like. The First Amendment does not protect stalking. The First Amendment does not protect harassment. So you could incorporate, and the utility of it is we have 100 plus years of rules. So they don't have to create, they don't have to recreate the wheel. They just have to say, you know, as long as, as long as your speech complies with First Amendment standards, we won't exclude it or censor it. If it doesn't, you give us the authority to do so. And the reality was they wanted more power than that. The media wanted big tech to use their platforms as gatekeepers. And to be uh, what uh, Eric Weinstein calls the the gin, the gatekeeper institution, the, the gated narrative. Insti institutional narrative. Eric Weinstein, exactly. yes. <laughs> and I think he's. And what it is is big tech, and that's why there were all these media hits on big tech. That's why Soros was shorting their stock. There was this massive collective pressure that said, "You guys need to use your power so that people understand that they should only be listening to quote authoritative sources." You know, the New York Times, CNN, whomever. Um, even though these sources have a longer history of causing more problems with lies that they've propagated, particularly in the context of wars, than anybody. I mean, nobody's worse than the New York Times in that regard. I'll put up Alex Jones against the New York Times in the sense of consequences of inaccurate information any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Uh, and so the so but here's so my solution is a different one. If you uh, and it's the old Supreme Court solution from uh, from the, both California and the Pruneyard Doctrine and the prior one that the U.S. Supreme Court case, the name of which is uh, currently evading me. But it's if you become a public if you become a monopoly over the public square, you abide by First Amendment standards. And what I told Senator Hawley several years ago was I said what should happen is amend Section 230 to make it a carrot rather than a stick. And the carrot is you will have all of this immunity. As long as if you are a, a, uh, a you have monopoly power, that means at least 70 percent of the that particular space within the economy. So this wouldn't apply to anybody small. This would only apply to the Googles, the Facebooks, the YouTubes, the Instagrams, the Snapchats, et cetera, where all of them have more than 70 percent of their particular market share. I mean, Google has over 90 percent through YouTube of videos, 95 percent of searches. Uh, Facebook has uh, over 90% of their particular, you know, MySpace is gone. Uh, so the, if, if uh, you have monopoly power, the, you can still have Section 230 protection as long as you comply with First Amendment standards, which, which protect against harass and all the rest. 
it even protects against certain forms of consumer fraud, certain, certain false information. The problem with allowing big tech to become the barometer, allowing any institution to become the barometer of truth is you inevitably get a big brother outcome that ultimately not only undermines the value of speech itself, but defeats the purpose of truth. Because sooner or later, as you know, the World Health Organization got stuff completely wrong consistently. One minute there, one minute they said, don't worry, this can't spread from person to person. I mean, maybe maybe the worst ever statement made about a public health pandemic ever. Don't worry, right. everything's fine. This can't spread between people. COVID-19 can't. I mean, does it get worse? Imagine if Alex Jones had said that. They would have right. hardened <laughs> feathered him already by now. Look at this crazy guy. He says that the that COVID-19 can't spread between people. They would have locked him up in a cellar of the London, uh, the Tower of London by now. But it was the World <laughs> Health Organization that said that to the world. And so we don't want these people telling us what true is. Down deep, free speech is very little de-democratic. It, I trust you, the audience, you, the community, you, the public, to decide what's true. I'm not going to tell you what's true. You get to decide. And that's the best way to go about it. So, so I think President Trump also said that. He was like, I'm just t- tweeting this, and then the public can decide whether. But, but I guess my issue is that what's different about those tech platforms and what's different between them from traditional public forums like the one you would see in Athens or whatever is they're scalable, right? And they're echo chambers. They can connect people and then limit their views into, you know, literally echo chambers. So when you scroll through your feed, you can literally just look at misinformation or right-wing views or progressive views and such and so on. So uh, maybe we can talk about a specific, let's say, um, white supremacist views or neo-Nazi views. Uh, is that protected under uh, First Amendment, for example, the Charlottesville March? But, but then if they go on Facebook or, or something to, to spread that, do you think it should still be banned? Or, or? I, I think it should not be banned uh, unless it offends two. And there's two exceptions. This is where the First Amendment's been very useful. If you're doing imminent, <coughs> imminent incitement of violence, so you're uh, or you're doing a true threat. A true threat is a threat that can actually be actionable and happen in, in real time. Then that's not neither one of those is protected under the First Amendment. Now, however, the and like by contrast, the Brandenburg decision, Klan gets together and they say a whole bunch of horrendous things about harm they want to cause to the local black community. But none of it was imminent incitement. And so the Supreme Court said that's politically protected. You can't do anything. And I'm for that because my concern is where do you draw the line? Uh, do you draw the line of, let, let, let's say, for people on the left, we got to, quote, take out Trump? Well, if we start, if we don't make that imminent incite, that imminent component of, in, of imminent incitement to apply, all of a sudden that person's banned when that clearly isn't, they didn't mean go and kill him tomorrow. Um, so I think uh, I, I, I always will favor more speech rather than less speech. And I always favor more of the audience having power than any centralized institution having power. Just because not only that's what I, I have a little de-democratic view of free speech, that for it to be meaningful, it means the little guy's got to have his access to the public square too. But also, and, and the audience should be the one to decide, not anyone else. Uh, I should have the right to decide what's true and not, not some centralized force. But also because through the whole history of humanity, Whenever any centralized source has taken over telling you what is accurate and what's not, it's inevitably led to less truth, not more truth being exposed or discovered. I agree with the last two statements you said. One is that individuals should decide for themselves, and the other is uh, centralized decision-making telling you the truth doesn't work work out very well. That's a very dystopian future. Uh, However, it it seems to be uh, very idealistic in in some way because people these days uh, rarely 
not rarely have become, I guess, less inclined to often make decisions based on facts or, or, or they can find an alternative set of facts because the algorithm of the big tech platform pushes them a different set of facts. So if I want to justify that climate change isn't real, or if I want to ju justify uh, neo-Nazism and, and I retweet these things and I only read those articles, I'm pretty sure I can find a set of facts th that, that checks out, that are logical, that support my view. Uh, and maybe under First Amendment, we should protect those. But do you still think that, that we should, how should we deal with them, even though it's such a gray area that I understand? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I still, it, two things. One is I still think the answer to bad speech is always more speech is good speech. Uh, and so make sure there's as many voices as possible, get the chance to be heard, and that will improve the chances of truth being discovered uh, and for people to discover it for themselves. The second is, uh, to a certain degree, we've always had this problem. So even when, let's say, the, the physical public square, people tend to only go to that part of the public square saying what they wanted to hear. And this is the nature of psychology, of confirmation bias, of the real reason we seek out information. Like that's where years ago. And so I think in that part, we need a cultural change to, uh, but I don't think that should be institutionalized or forced on people. Um, I mean, I would like an algorithm that gave people the opposite opinion of whatever they heard. You know, the, I, would I would love it if YouTube did that. If say, okay, you just saw this, I'm going to give you one of the more popular versions that's just the opposite of that. You know, that, in fact, it would be cool if they would at least give people that option. Say, like, I would love the option that says, give me the debate on both sides of that's popular on X issue. Uh, you know, do masks work, for example, in COVID? Uh, uh, did, uh, uh, was the election legal or illegal? Who was, the, you know, th that would be fun to have. Uh, big tech doesn't allow that because big tech wants to keep people watching. And they know the best way to keep people watching is to keep giving them stuff they want to hear. I mean, that, that's part of our human psychology. That, that's a weakness in, in human beings that can only be counteracted by cultural change. Um, I mean, that's what Christopher Lash always explained. The reason why you engage someone who disagrees with you isn't to persuade them or for them to persuade you. It's for you to become better informed in the debate because that's often when, like we'll engage someone that we disagree with and they'll say something that will make us really mad. And then we'll go and actually research the topic because we want to prove that person wrong. Hey, they didn't get that right. I'm going to find that. And that's when we get there. Then we become at a minimum more informed. Sometimes we change our minds. I was like, well, golly gee, I turned out to be wrong. So the uh, that's why engagement is very valuable. Unfortunately, the real reason big tech doesn't encourage engagement and wants echo chambers, it's because it's how they keep people's eyes on the platform. The, the profits, shareholder value maximization. Yes. But, exactly. but, Mr. Brown, it sounds like you and New York Times are very much on the same page. It's, it's just like we need to foster better cultural discourse. Uh, mm -hmm. Journalism is for the point for informing people with better facts so that they can make better decisions for themselves. Uh, however, I, I guess uh, part of the, the, the very earlier, my second question that I asked you that we haven't really th that, uh, dove into, which is, uh, do you think there's a systemic force behind, quote unquote, the left or the institutional narrative that are trying to uh, suppress conservative voices? Because I think there are facts, uh, some data point that says seven out of 10 trending articles trending misinformation articles are far-right conservative articles on social media. So it's hard to call them victims when they are the ones dominating the, the, the misinformation problem. It's, so there's been a very long debate, you know, every time the big tech executives go on Capitol Hill, they get grilled on whether the big tech are actually suppressing conservative arguments. So do you think there, there's a group of people uh, getting behind closed doors and say, we need to do this? 
<laughs> I think, well, you can have systemic mechanisms. So here's how I tend to interpret systemic mechanisms. I look at just what evidence we have in a particular circumstance. So take Alex Jones. What I can tell you in Alex Jones is he went from never being sued by anybody to suddenly being sued by people from all across the country uh, on a wide range of claims in both state and federal court for things that had never bothered them before and that they'd never complained of before. Historically, when I'm defending or representing people, that's usually the sign of a systemic legal campaign. That's a lawfare campaign. That's somebody helping to organize or orchestrate an effort to do so. Now, and when I was part of the plaintiff's bar, we did that all the time. And we had, I guarantee you it was systemic. What happened against big tobacco wasn't an accident. What happened against certain car manufacturers wasn't an accident. What happened to go, you know, all those was because we get together and look at who's a good target. How do we get them? And, you know, the, the unfortunately in plaintiff's bar, the real truth of the matter is you start off with, Who's got the money? <laughs> you don't start off with, uh, you know, what's the most justice. The reason why I quit being heavily active, involved in the plaintiff's bar, it was all about money and very little about justice, in my view. Sometimes the two combined in a great way, but it was almost accidental whether they did rather than intentional. But those were clearly, in my experience for the legal system, when the government comes after you, you'll see the systemic ties because it is a systemic plan. Okay, we want to criminally, we think this person's involved in crime. We think this per, or this organization, and they'll be coming at you. So what you learn to do is to look at the evidence you can gather like years ago, uh, Seth Cohen was looking at buying the L.A. Dodgers before he bought the New York Mets. Some people who uh, wanted to buy the Dodgers wanted me to investigate whether Cohen was under criminal investigation. And so I looked at the same tea leaves and I said, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the And for people who don't know, the character in Billions, that's all about Cohen. By the way, oh. don't take, you know, both he and his, uh, he and his, uh, 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 it's a lesson of he and Steve don't tick off your, your ex-wives. You know, just, just word to the wise. You know, <laughs> Steve Wynn's ex-wife waited long enough to knife him in the back, and the same thing happened to Cohen. So ultimately, and by the way, Cohen defended himself the way the Billions guy did. That's why he never got indicted. That guy is one sharp son of a gun. A lot of people around him got hit, but he managed to keep those uh, magical returns on his hedge funds and never get criminally prosecuted, despite his ex-wife ratting him out. Um, but, uh, I was able to look at it and then three years I said, yeah, he definitely is. They're trying to get him, but they may not get him. Preet Bharara is just like the original beginning of that billions character. He's a total wuss at heart. He didn't want to go after anybody he could lose against and get humiliated. That's why none of the, that, like people think there was some sort of corrupt deal as to why Bharara never hit anybody big on wall street while he was the Southern district of New York's U S attorney. No, it's because the guy's a wuss and is terrified of losing. Uh, so the, but. All that, so, but what is this? From all of those legal experiences, I've learned to look at what are signs that there's a systemic effort, that someone's really targeting either your client for criminal prosecution, that there's some economic adversary targeting them for civil litigation or, or some other mean. Like a lot of my clients' criminal cases, they arose out of uh, disputes with their ex-business partners or their competitors. Uh, so like I mean, a lot of that corporate espionage, which U.S. blames on uh, you know other countries and other... Uh, companies do it to each other every single day in America and wage war on one another. Some, I mean, some of the disputes between Dominion and Smartmatic in the election space came from both of them because they've leaked terrible stories about each other because they're competitors in the economic space. So when I look at it, I look at when the suits were brought, how the suits were brought, where the suits were brought. And not only that, here's like the giveaway. 
when all the social media platforms use the same outcome of a state case to suspend Jones on the exact same day, it's like none of that's coordinated. I'm not that that's where now does it mean there's like a George Soros is in a room and he's meeting together and he's telling no, I'm not saying that what I'm saying is you have a group of people who have a shared view of the world who are in who I do think are cooperating at some levels who are weaponizing their tools of power against Jones because they think Jones is in their view a threat to society or to truth or whatever it is that they want to say uh, but I do think Jones was the victim of a coordinated attack no doubt uh, so I w- I guess as a follow-up, you know, um, talk show host Joe Rogan, who we, we kind of brought him up a couple of times, he's well known for hosting very controversial topics. And a few weeks ago, I was listening to this clip by Eric Weinstein, who, who you brought up, and Lex Friedman, who is a MIT scientist and also hosts a very famous podcast. And Eric Weinstein says Joe Rogan is under attack and that uh, anybody who's come near Joe Rogan's circle always ends up in, in some bad place. And Joe Rogan has done tremendously a lot for his friends to, to protect them. And um, and in that video amassed like half a million views in a couple of days. And I was li- li- listening to that. I've been hearing, so I listened to a lot of Eric Weinstein and Lex Friedman, Joe Rogan, all, all these people. So it's, it really seems that there is something going on, some kind of coordinated uh, effort. And, and you just said that, that, that they came after Alex Jones. So, I guess we, we should distinguish one is what you said is that these media companies or tech companies happen to share a similar view of the world. There may be some journalists in New York City sitting in his office and another um, woman walking across the street, working at a different uh, tech platform, whatever. Uh, they happen to look at the same cases. They happen to uh, stumble upon the same issues. And then they, um, the compliance departments talk to each other and then they decide to ban it together. That's a very different kind of situation than Zuckerberg, Bezos, uh, Soros. They all got together and they said, these people like Eric Weinstein, Joe Rogan, and Alex Jones are about to have a revolution against us and bring us on the guillotine. So we have to use some way to take them out. Those are very different, right? Yes, agreed. I think people have a tendency to believe that something cannot be systemic unless it's centralized and hierarchical or organized. And that's why I say that's not really the history of any kind of conspiracy or bad action. It's just, I call it cotton ball culture. So like in the South, when you're 17, you go to this cotton, you used to, you go to the cotton ball. And really what the cotton ball is about is about acculturating the elite so that they recognize each other as part of a privileged, different class than the rest of the population. And then you don't need them to conspire to oppress the interest of working class people or labor unions or African-Americans or whomever it may have been over time. They already know, okay, we have a shared sense of a shared place and status and a shared, and that's going to help us have a shared view of the world. And then when each of us have power, we will leverage that power to protect our status uh, or protect our view of the world. And you don't need them to sit in a room and go to the country club and, you know, have secret discussions to do that. You just have a shared perspective, a shared viewpoint. It's how cultural change happens. It's how, like, you look at some of the horrible things that happened during communism. And well, they didn't necessarily get in a room and said, let's go screw this dissident over here. It was a culture that said, that's heresy. That's dangerous. I must suppress it. And enough people in power shared that to make it systemic. And so that's my view of what's happening in big tech. It's that you have so now you have Holly who found that they were actually sharing a board where they were commenting on getting rid of certain people, but with Facebook and Google and engineers both on that. So there you have coordination of a, 
uh, of what criminal lawyers would call a conspiracy. But my view is you just have a you have a culture. You don't need a conspiracy to effectuate systemic change. And the culture of so many people with power, you just need enough of them to have institutionalized power to make it systemically effective and impactful. And that's what I, that's what I think most things are. I think like most things that people attribute to a conspiracy of a group of people, I attribute to a culture of people in power who happen to share the same perspective. That's a very powerful point because it goes back to your very first point brought up at this interview. When you were at Yale, you saw the rise of the elite class and how this soon-to-be ruling class share a very different view compared to the rest of America. So in your view, if, if I understand this correctly, it's, it's saying we, ha we have a culture where uh, certain groups of the people uh, in powerful positions, and they don't have to be CEOs, they could be a New York Times journalists, they could be an engineer at, at Facebook who are, who are paid very well and they're very well off, but because they make certain decisions, even at middle level or low level decision-making apparatuses, uh, and they happen to share a shared worldview and, and have a culture of really feeling whether um, Alex Jones is perpetrating some injustice, where they feel an obligation to uh, rule, rule out certain parts of the society uh, for the better, for progress, they therefore um, subconsciously or, or kind of inadvertently come together and end up having a lot of the ripple effects that we're seeing today. So that's what we would call the institutional narrative so the, yeah. the, exactly. rather they, than a, a top They're all reading level. off the same script that they all wrote together. Like going back to like Jung called it the collective unconscious. <laughs> you know, how do you have a six-year-old in Brazil and a six-year-old in Austria do the same kind of drawing to describe their trauma that they're experiencing when neither one has ever met each other and it's not a shared universal image. Uh, and his view is that it's because they're on the same wavelength, if you will. He literally believed you know, the other mind and bad waves and whatnot. But basically, it's you can uh, you everybody can be writing the same script if they've been told the same story. And so that's what I think is effectively happening. It, it's how, like it's where I agree with the left when the left talks about cultural institutional power in the areas of race, in the areas of gender, in the areas of narrative. Uh, the the they're I think they're partially correct. That's how actually power is implemented is a lot of people who share the same story who want to see the same script happen. Um, I disagree with where they take some of their interpretations of the past and the present, but I think that method that mode of interpretation is actually useful to understand how power really operates. Uh, and I think that's what's functionally happening. And so the, uh, and I think that's, that's the broader, that's my broader concern. And I think what I've been telling people is that we're really, we've, we've had a massive class conflict that's been building for decades of which Trump is just an expression. And that we have a lot of working and middle-class people who have one view of the world from their lived experience. That's very different from the professional class that has increasingly seized power using credentialing and licensing as a means of getting access to power in the first place, controlling everything from human resource departments to, uh, to who, who gets scripts and who gets directors and who gets acting gigs in Hollywood. You know, it's, it's, it's such that, I should not know right away if I tune into an HBO or Showtime show what the political preference of its authors are going to be. And yet I do. And it's like, that's the power. That's when cult, there's cultural uh, hegemonic influence of yes. a particular mindset that's actually very contrary to the one in uh, blue collar Iowa. So it's like saying in economics, over the past 30 years, capital has completely destroyed labor. Yes. <laughs> or in, in your view, it's like saying, 
the the left is really has taken over whether it's the business. I mean, I think 20, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, top 10, top 50 Fortune 500 companies were run by a lot of Republicans, conservatives. Now it's uh, centrist Democrats. Uh, media companies are all mostly run by Democrats, such and so on. So, so it, it almost seems that the, the cultural discourse has shifted towards the left in some way in certain circles. Uh, and, and that is the source of polarization where the, the, the large swath of the, the, the working class population in America um, felt kind of helpless and, and didn't really know who to listen to. And Alex Jones and uh, Joe Rogan and Rush Limbaugh. Yes. Know, All of them are, ref- I've been telling people the institutional media is like, they think Alex Jones created his audience. They think Rush Limbaugh created his audience. It's the it's CNN like that created the audience. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's all of them. It's like they have created, what it was is there was this big thirst and demand for something different than the institutional media because they were rebelling against it because the institutional media was rebelling against them first. The institutional wow. media started having a cultural, social, political mindset that was directly opposite their perspective from their lived experience. So they went out looking for an Alex Jones, a Rush Limbaugh. It's like I was always struck by the media who thought if we just get rid of Trump, people will come back and respect us again. It's like no, no, Trump is channeling their dislike of you. He's not creating their dislike of you. The reason why he got elected president, we had a reality TV star become president of the most powerful country in the world. There should have been a wake-up sign to the political class. Oh, maybe we're not doing things so good, and people are so ticked off that they're going to let out a primal scream in the name of Donald J. Trump. But instead it was, no, Donald Trump must have somehow secretly created this. And it's like, no, or maybe maybe the Ruskies did it. I was like, that isn't how this happened. Uh, And they still won't come to terms with their own, they, they are still in the let them eat cake world that they still don't understand. I mean, why that phrase is still so popular with us was because of how the deep disconnect between the royalty and the population they were supposed to be governing and taking care of who think, oh, if we give them cake, then they'll be happy because when I have cake, everything's fun. Uh, it shows like, okay, no, that's not the problem. The, the, the same dynamic is here. And they're making it worse. YouTube saying you can't talk about the election that's going to make far more people distrust the election results. It's not going to lead to increased confidence. They're going to be like, why are you scared of me even hearing somebody's point of view on this? Um, and so they don't understand this. They, 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 I think it's part of a safe, safe space culture that's been ever since the, the kidnapping scares of the late 80s and early 90s. Parents, particularly in the professional class, protected their kids. You had to go on play dates. You couldn't just play out in the streets. You, know, you couldn't even imagine like a 1920s New York City where you got kids running around neighborhoods with who God knows who uh, happening in the 1990s. And then they go to college and they got safe spaces there. When my niece went to Tufts, where there's 97% of the students all agree with each other, and they still had 38 different safe spaces. I was like, who do they need a safe space from? I mean, they, they all agree with each other. So it's that kind of mindset mentality. And when I meet young lawyers, they can't even handle debate or disagreement. I, I learned not to do it because like, oh, I'll, I'll break the fragile identity or IQ, they, their self-image. It's like, holy moly. So we've taught people to be weak and impotent. And that if, if somebody disagrees with us, that means they're evil and they should be censored and they should be kicked out of the group and they should be thrown out of class and they should be dismissed and, they, and that the powers that be should rush in and punish them for it. 
Uh, it's totally opposite the American experiment. It's totally opposite the First Amendment. It's totally opposite who we're supposed to be as Americans. Uh, it's totally opposite enlightenment principles. And I think that's what we're, we're just seeing the ultimate culmination and expression of it. And they don't still realize that it's their disconnectedness that is the source of the rebellion. The rebellion is not the reason for the disconnectedness. Mr. Barnes, just to quickly reiterate that point, I mean, we talked, you quickly mentioned uh, the rise of, I guess, intolerance on campuses. Um, and and uh, the left has kind of stirred this backlash from people on the right. But uh, one worldview that I've been presented with, especially uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, and even with issues of climate change, is that people on the left, a lot of my friends in Princeton, would say, because you and I disagree on such a fundamental issue, such as whether Black Lives Matter, such as whether climate change is real, because we disagree so fundamentally and because those issues are so important, I just cannot talk to you anymore. And, and, or, or, or you, if you can't even realize that, if we're not even in the shared, same shared reality, it's not even genuine discourse anymore. So they would often feel that people on the right or, or a lot of the narratives on the right are insincere, are, are not good faith debates, and are just fundamentally wrong and not based on facts. Well, the sarcastic side of me wants to respond with, uh, why are they rejecting my lived experience? And uh, why are they being prejudiced? In the sense that that's their inter... You, you can't say everybody's lived experience is of equal value, and then turn around and reject the lived experience you don't like when it produces a certain opinion you don't like. You know, it's one or the other. But I think more fundamentally, it's a misapprehension of how truth is discovered and how change occurs. The truth does, does not get discovered by hiding in a basement. And, uh, and, and justice does not happen and change doesn't occur by failing to try to persuade those that disagree with us. We try to persuade those who disagree with us because one, it educates us primarily. But secondly, it's the only mechanism or means or method by which change is gonna happen anyway. And so there's this tendency to equate. Now, part of this is just human experience writ large. Every person believes that their political beliefs, policy beliefs, candidate beliefs, party beliefs are the product of their conscience, the part of their of their cognitive capacity and their knowledge. So you think, I believe what I believe because I'm smart, I'm informed and I'm a good person. So whenever anybody disagrees with us, our natural instinct is to say they must be uninformed or worse, maybe they've been brainwashed. Or we, if, if that doesn't satisfy us, we say they must be dumb. They must be idiots. They just must not be very smart. Or we go to the third, they must really be evil. Uh, and increasingly these days, everybody just skips to number three. Somebody disagrees with us, they must be evil. When in reality, someone disagrees with us because they have different li lived experiences than us, number one. Number two, they trust different sources of information than we do. And the and the and the consequence of that and that everybody, in my view, 97, 98 percent of people in the world, their political beliefs are the products of good, of well in, good intentions and of their own trusted sources of information, which includes their own lived experience. The reality is that sometimes creates two different truths. Uh, I mean, and I've always liked Scott Adams in this respect. Scott Adams says I can't be cocky about my beliefs because I've disagreed with myself over my lifetime. So well, was my 25-year-old version definitely wrong and now my current version is right? Or maybe the truth is somewhere in between. I may even change my mind five years from now. So <clears throat> I, I think that if we 
I think that the technique of adversarial debate is useful for uncovering truth. It's what the whole legal system is predicated upon, that an adversarial process with people dedicated to different positions will help produce better truth. And it relates to another argument I make with everybody. It's like everybody's governed by motivated reasoning. Reasoning will not be the master of motivation in our human lifetimes. However, what we can do to improve our reasoning is to change our motivation. So like what I always tell, like when I'm trying to bet, one reason why I bet on elections <clears throat> is because it forces me to sit back and, okay, let me imagine the world through all of these different perspectives and see if I can predict what they're going to do. Because that tells me I'm, I'm better able to understand all these different perspectives, why they think what they do, how they think what they do and what it's going to lead them to do. And <clears throat> it's changing my motivation, Change my motivation. My reasoning gets much better. And I recommend it for everyone else. That's the whole theory of the law. The whole theory of the law is, I'm going to give you, lawyer, a motivation to argue that position. And I'm going to give you, the other lawyer, the uh, motivation to argue the opposite position. And by doing so, you'll both have the best reasoning from those perspectives. And from the adversarial process, we'll have the best chance to know what truth is. And I, I think that should be applied universally. And that's why the whole cancel culture, safe space culture, big tech, big brother censorship – these things coming back into vogue terrify me because the great benefit of the human experience and the American experiment is independence of thought, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, debate, discussion, and dialogue. All of that is lost if we live in a statist, censorious society. Uh, I, I guess, would you say that there is inherent value to the existence of even what some would consider to be extreme opinions, someone like Alex Jones. So, so in other words, maybe the substance, uh, so, so I guess you are making the argument that even his substance has a lot of value because he does show you a lot of those things. But even if you don't agree with his substance, even if you are someone on the left or someone who completely thinks he, he's a fraud, then there's still an inherent value to his existence just because he creates some kind of a contrast to the, the shared reality that you are in. So, so that's what you're, you're saying. Yeah, ex ex exactly. Both of those. One, I want to hear all the different opinions because through that is the best way to discover truth. But also as, as a matter of humanitarianism, I love it when the little guy, no matter how crazy they may be or may appear to be, has a platform in the public square because that's a reflection, in my view, of their humanity, respecting their humanity. We're respecting every individual's right to have an opinion, the right to express that opinion, the right to share that opinion, because that's a respecting of their individuality. It's a respecting of their humanity. And so to me, humanitarianism must respect everybody's opinion and give everybody a voice. Doesn't mean they all have to have a microphone or a megaphone, but they but nobody should be excluded from the public square. And I while I distrust that for tangential reasons, once you start excluding people from the public square, truth is less likely to be discovered. Uh, my right to hear them is being interfered with and impaired. And I think that the adversarial process is the best way to discover truth. I think also just even if it had no other value, the ability to let a person speak their mind, speak their truth, as the left would say, uh, has, I do, that's where I agree with them, that has that act has humanitarian value because we're respect part of being a human being is having an opinion. Part of being a human being in a civil society is the chance to express it. And that's why I reflect it. And uh, it reflects humanitarianism to allow everybody a day in court and a day on the public square. I guess, Mr. Barnes, uh, would I be fair to characterize that you are someone of uh, a conservative view or, or someone of the right relative to the political spectrum or 
Uh, I would say populist. So I that's see. where I have a very admixture of beliefs. So I, I call myself a populist constitutionalist. Uh, so that's the combination that uh, the it's my own little label applied to myself that probably best explains and predicts what others might see as contra- as co- conflicting opinions. Contrarian. Like, when I was I a see. freshman at Yale, we were given these articles to read, and it was part of it was mo- they were mostly supposed to be teaching us how to argue and how to write, and they would give us the conservative version and the liberal version, and I would always write a third, totally my own version. Uh, and I kept getting bad grades and the T and it's because my analysis didn't fit. Oh, I was supposed to be either left or right. Why am I not left or right? Something must be wrong. I must've missed the argument. And my teacher at the end pulled aside, like, you know, you do the best in class in arguing. Why are your grades like this? Cause the TAs of course were doing all the grading. Uh, but I was like, I'll tell you why it's because I'm writing an opinion. Neither the left nor the right captures my view on this. I have a different view on everything from the minimum wage to trade, to war, to, to speech, to section 230. Like I'm not in Trump's camp of abolishing it. I'm not in the establishment camp of just keeping it as it is. Uh, I have a third vision. Now, I think that populist perspective is the predominant political uh, attitude in American society going all the way back to Thomas Paine. Um, but it, and it's often not reflected because what we have are two groups of lawyers arguing for power, the conservative establishment business version and the liberal academic version and the ordinary working class person. And they're basically being said, do you want big business to run your life or do you want big government to run your life? And the ordinary person is like, could I choose neither? Uh, they establish a dichotomy. It's, it's so stark, right? Yes, exactly. And it's a dichotomy they don't fit in. Like, for example, if you'll ask people, liberal, conserv- are you liberal, conservative, moderate, or does none of the above really describe you? None of the above will win the polls. And that's why they quit a- yeah. adding that component to the polls, because all yeah. of a sudden they're like, hold on a second. Our whole perspective of the world has just been shattered. Right. Uh, so I guess th- this term... Uh, intellectual dark web, the rise yeah. of the intellectual dark web, so, which includes people like Joe Rogan, Eric Weinstein, Dave Rubin, um, uh, Peter Thiel, a, a group of these people who, I guess someone like Joe Rogan that most of our listeners must be familiar with, he has that kind of Bernie-ish bend. He, he says he would vote for Bernie, but he is also has that Trumpism bend. Uh, you know, so, so, so it's, you cannot pin this guy down. So, no. And that seems to be the rise of, I guess, the, the intellectual dark web. So what do you think of them? Uh, you, you were obviously on um, Dave Rubin's show. You, you, you know, uh, Alex Jones, and you uh, referred to Eric Weinstein a couple of times here. So I think they reflect a certain sort of populist independent line of thought, though the, a lot of them reflect the free speech and free thought one particularly. So for people like Brett Wine, what I've always said is I said if the left was being successful persuasively, they should never lose the Weinstein brothers. The fact that they have is a sign that they're doing something wrong in terms of their persuasive mechanisms of the value of their particular approach to the world. But like, like your working class northerner, your, your classic swing voter is someone who doesn't trust Hollywood culture but also doesn't want a preacher telling them what to do. That's why Trump was like perfectly made for that group. And that's why they over, overlap so strongly with Alex Jones's core audience. They're people who don't mind cussing. Uh, I, was, I used to say my favorite group in the South religiously were Pentecostals because they party crazy on Saturday and then pray a lot about it on Sunday. Uh, and it's that kind of sort of mindset. It's things that like, this is why they couldn't understand in the polls, why Trump was doing so well with people who self-described as evangelicals. It's because half of evangelicals are cultural evangelicals. They don't, you know, maybe they go to like Catholics. 
Maybe they go to church on Christmas and Easter, and that's about it. There's a big gap between your church-going evangelicals and your non-church-going evangelicals. In fact, your non-church-going evangelicals really don't trust and like the church lady down the street. It was always judging them. So that's where Trump was perfect for that. You know, the, uh, his combination of the Bible is great, but now I'm going to cuss out some people. Uh, so that, that sort of combination. <laughs> but I think that, that, uh, that sort of independence of thought that reflects old Americanism from the Thomas Paine tradition is what unites the various disparate aspects of the, uh, the intellectual dark web. They're all fans of Thomas Paine. I see. Um... How do we, I guess we've talked about polarization and what has fascinated me a lot is that the way you describe the problem and, and part of the solution is quite similar to someone uh, maybe like Trey Gowdy, who's this kind of the, was the leader of the Tea Party and we had him on the show. Uh, I had a fantastic conversation with him a couple of weeks ago and um, we're someone very prominent of the left. I mean, I have lots of, a lot of Princeton professors, as you can assume, are, are somewhat democratic, uh, liberally leaning, and uh, people recognize the need to come together. They recognize that you have to find some, you know, societal fabric that brings people together. They recognize the harm of social media and, and uh, misinformation. But why can't people come together? For example, why, right? I, 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 I don't see, is it because people are too hung up on individual track records and say, oh, because Trey Gowdy was part of the partisan movement, I'm just not going to trust him. Or maybe because Robert Barnes is a lawyer for Alex Jones, he's gone. So it seems that you have a lot of the shared values. Oh, it's always fascinating as a lawyer, because I know when the hit piece is coming, which perspective there is by which client they highlight. So the uh, so if it's from the left, I'll know that I'll know the hit pieces from the left uh, when it says Robert Barnes, a lawyer for Alex Jones. Uh, I'll know the hit pieces from the uh, right says Robert Barnes, lawyer for Ralph Nader or lawyer for the Green Party, lawyer for the Peace and Freedom Party, last socialist standing party in America. I've represented them all. That's what I told me. was like, I guarantee you I've represented somebody you hate because they hate each other uh, politically. Uh, but I've represented all the way across the political spectrum, libertarians, tea parties, independents, constitutionalists, you name it, taxpayers party, uh, anybody who wanted to have their chance to have their voice in the public square through petitioning or ballot access, I've represented at some point over the last 20 years. The And I think it's the commitment to free thought and free debate that really separates the intellectual dark web from the rest because we're losing that. And I think it's whenever people, and this is where I think Scott Adams has a good point, be careful uh, attributing any belief you have with moral certainty. Because when you do that, yeah, that creates a dangerous trap to want to uh, force those views on other people, to hate other people who don't share that belief, to want to exclude them from the public square, say their beliefs are so morally horrendous and my views are so morally certain to be true that I have no choice but to uh, make sure Hitler doesn't rise to power. Uh, that kind of mindset and mentality tends to lead to bad places. I mean, that's where the phrase the road to hell is paved with good intentions comes from. Uh, and I think the only thing we should be morally certain about is the value of free speech, free thought and free debate. Yes, I guess what would be a, a practical, realistic uh, way of practice that? I mean, for example, if you were, how do you do it? How do you advise people to do it? For example, uh, one of my br very brilliant friends, I was talking to him that day and we were debating about policy effects. And I, I think 
from what I observe is that I'm just an undergrad student at Princeton. It's very hard for me to personally say what is the effect of, let's say, Trump's tax cut. I mean, I could I could learn about that effect from an article. I could from from a per paper, um, and and probably I can you know uh, arrive at some conclusion that should be qu quite close to the truth. Maybe it exacerbates inequality as what the left says. Uh, but but the right could you know obviously come up with a set of facts that says you know you actually pay more taxes for rich people blah blah blah. So when we assess a, a policy effect, when we assess uh, an argument, it seems that both sides have made valid arguments, and eventually what you have to do, what my friend said, is you have to take an ideological stance. So he says, what do you believe in? Are you someone of the left or are you someone of the left? But that seems to be a tautology, which right, which is that right, right. you uh, you believe in something be because you 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 value the merit of that argument, but you only value the merit of the argument because you are someone of that belief, which is uh, sort of a loop. And and I, but does that mean we have to be relativists? We we cannot have ideological standings on issues anymore. We're, I mean, I think we can. My, my measurements or metrics that I use or recommend to people are two things. One, try to be able to predict. So if you're right about a particular policy, particular person, particular party, uh, predict what you think the outcome is going to be and see how accurate your predictions are. And like Scott Adams has a bunch of these as well that are good. And his point is that if you're really bad at short-term predictions, you're probably approaching things from the wrong perspective. Uh, whereas if you're able to predict it at above average rate, that means you, you at least from an accuracy perspective, you, you have a good clean read on it. And that's what I like betting markets for. Betting markets, like I recommend that to people to do, even if you're just you know, $5, just because the, the habit of doing so will force you to evaluate things more objectively. You'll see people who have feel absolutely certain about something. And you say, okay, let's bet $10 on it. And all of a sudden, like, well, hold on a second. And it's like, okay, now you're revealing to yourself that you're not quite as certain as you thought you would, you were about certain things happening. So I, I encourage people. That's why I love uh, skin in the game. I agree with the uh, uh, Taleb. Yes, exactly. But Taleb, I think, is absolutely. Even though he's got a totally fragile ego, he blocked me on Twitter <laughs> because I did, oh, really? I pointed out that I told him I said, "What if the black swan of COVID nineteen is Taleb?" What, what if it's a, not actually the virus, but it's your perspective on the virus? And I thought it was an interesting point that might provoke a response. Well, it did provoke a response. Block, block. The, uh, <laughs> so uh, even though, again, I think the man is a pure genius. Yes. But I think he's right that you need skin in the game. And, you know, betting markets are a way to do it. There's other ways to do it. But it, you it have forces to test you your to judgment be, all the time. Exactly. It forces you to really – it gives an objective measurement. How right am I really about these things? The other thing I always encourage people to do is change your motivation. So like I told, I suggested to my niece, I was like, if you really want to understand these different political perspectives, create four Twitter accounts of the different perspectives and uh, create little echo chambers within each of those and see how good you are at being able to say things that are popular within that group, uh, be able to respond to it because you'll start to figure, okay, this is how this group thinks. I mean, that's why I love betting on campaigns and trying to predict politics is I want to be able to predict what the Norwegians of Western Wisconsin, like this last election, there was one group I missed, which I shouldn't have, but it was Yankees, old Yankees. Like what unites Northern Maine and Eastern Kansas? Well, ancestrally, there's a disproportionate number of old Yankees, the people that first settled the United States. Both of those regions trended heavily anti-Trump. Uh, I mean, not anti-Trump, but they were much less pro-Trump than they had been in 2016. Uh, whereas if you knew Norwegians of Western Wisconsin and, and no Northern parts of Minnesota, they trended toward Trump. The problem is the Swedes and the Finns 
trended the opposite way. And there's a bunch of them in uh, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, and that's like, like, and I didn't see it coming because I saw I was right about the Norwegians. I underestimated, but that's the utility that say, okay, what's the mindset? What's the the historical ancestry of political narratives that I grew up with that helped me shape and see the world in a certain way. And for like Swedes, Finns, and Yankees, they've tended to vote in together for, for centuries in America because they're more respectable types. They don't like the disrespectable type. And four years of Trump was four years too much for them. Whereas the Norwegians, particularly Norwegians in America, are come from the very populist conservative traditions, deeply anti-war. They loved the way Trump handled things because he actually kept his word about not going to war. So th that's why you saw a divide like in Wisconsin, no Republicans ever lost who won the Norwegians. Trump was the first one to because he uh, lost just enough. Well, maybe he lost just enough. That'll be another question for history. But the, uh, as I like to put it, the if the election was within the margin of fraud, Trump was in trouble. And whether or not fraud occurred or it was just systemic irregularities, uh, you know, the, all these people that were became indefinitely confined somehow in Wisconsin overnight, uh, suddenly they were all in hospital beds when they weren't in hospital beds. But that's another story, uh, uh, though, maybe a bridge into the election. Uh, but I but that that's what's useful. You know, try to study, try to be able to predict other people's views who totally disagree with you. And then you'll be much better at understanding a multiplicity of perspectives and getting to truth and try to force skin in the game upon yourself to be able to uh, measure the accuracy of your own assumptions and beliefs. We should really talk about uh, the election since we, we've been going on for a while. And you, I forgot to, to say at the, at the intro, you uh, won the, you, you're the American who won the, the, the largest amount of money when it comes to election betting, especially in 2016. You bet on Trump, you won huge. You flew to Ireland, you made a bunch of small bets because in the States, the election betting is not really purely legal. So uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, on this election, um, because so yesterday, so we're recording this on December 15th, yesterday on 14th, uh, Congress, so the, the electors, state electors came to Congress and finally certified the results for, for Biden's victory. Um, and yesterday also, Attorney General Bill Barr resigned. So tons of stuff is going on. And um, this Trump is going on and on saying there, there's continues to be election fraud. He, he believes that his lawsuits were, will pre prevail, even though the Supreme Court has struck down a, a bunch and uh, there doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Mitch McConnell today even said he will, he congratulated Biden. So where do you see all this happening? Uh, what is going on here? So that's uh, sort of fascinating. So the multiple perspectives. So I've been betting on elections since I was a kid, have never lost money on a presidential election cycle. And I should have lost money this presidential election cycle, but I didn't because because of co the luck of the Irish is still present. They wouldn't all they closed down all the Irish uh, books uh, because of COVID in October. So I couldn't go to Ireland in London. They required you to quarantine for 14 days. So I couldn't bet in London. And I asked certain uh, sports books, would they take my money if I, you know, I, I could get someone that to uh, courier the cash. And they said, no, we don't want, they were, because of my success in 2016, they wanted nothing to do with my money in 2020. <laughs> They're like, stay home, Bobby, uh, in that nice English di diplomatic, uh, polite yeah. <laughs> way. So because of it, I was forced to put all of my money on Predict It, which is the only legal betting market for politics in America. But because they limit each market, I had to spread my money around. So I had to bet on a bunch of house races. I had to bet on the margin of victory in a bunch of states. 
And because of the craziness of this election, I still made money, despite at least right now and for predicted purposes, Trump lost on those markets. But I won on the margin of victory in Florida, one on the margin of victory in Ohio, one on the margin of victory in Iowa, one on the margin of victory in Texas, one on the margin of victory in terms of the popular vote being nowhere near what the polls said they were going to be, one in terms of the electoral vote margins being nowhere where they were predicting it, one on a bunch of Senate races, one on a bunch of House races. So I ended up making money despite all of this. Just like 2018, I had a big bet on the House and a bet that the Senate Republicans would add two seats in the Senate. Because they were both underdog bets, I still made money, even though the House bet didn't pay off. And it's because we've had some really weird elections since 2016. We've seen things that almost always go in the same pattern, go in opposite patterns. Um, and so 2018 was kind of a preview for that, though. 2020 is crazy. I mean, we had 15 counties that have picked the winner uh, in every single election since 1960. And the reason why 1960s there is because that was a Catholic Protestant split, depending on the nature of the county. Um, but otherwise, have been absolutely predictive in the modern era. All of them voted for Trump, most of them by big margins, and yet Trump lost. So it's like the first time the first time Ohio and Florida have trended more Republican and the Republican lose uh, votes and lose percentages in, in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Never happened before uh, since 1960. Uh, so, and again, that was a religious divide. So all of your traditional metrics, social media metrics, enthusiasm metrics, uh, lack of a, you know, an incumbent being challenged, all these metrics said Trump was going to win. Uh, and and then all the polls said Biden was going to win big and ended up being in between and up being a split the baby kind of result where, uh, where all of the historical metrics were wrong and all the polls were wrong. Biden won, but he barely won. Um, and so I think now from a, I think the, the key thing in the election, no doubt, was mail-in balloting. And the big open question is, was the mail-in balloting legal or not? And for that, you don't have to prove fraud or forgery. You could just have people who didn't realize they were no longer lawfully registered to vote or somebody who wasn't 18 who, and like a bunch of them in Georgia, 17-year-olds managed to somehow vote. Uh, you have people who weren't lawfully registered at an actual physical address as is required under law uh, to vote. So we have three mechanisms, and that's just going to be an open question, because the sad part is all of our courts have run and hit, and almost all of our uh, election officials have run and hit. So like uh, when I uh, the when this whole process started, I was like, there's three questions. Okay, did people who are not lawfully qualified to vote vote? Second, did people lawfully cast their ballots? And the way I give it that is there's a certain protocol you have to go into for mail-in balloting. Uh, it'd be like showing up at the polls late. That doesn't mean you're a fraudulent voter, but let's say you show up at nine o'clock an hour late and you're, and you were allowed to vote. Well, that's an illegally cast vote because you had to be there by eight o'clock. Doesn't make it fraud, fraud or forgery. It just means you didn't abide by the rules. Well, did the same thing happen in the mail-in balloting context? Uh, so first who was, did only the qualified people vote? Did people cast their vote in an unlawful manner? And then third was the count of the vote done lawfully and correctly. And there are ways, I mean, the United States Elections Assistance Commission formed after the debacle of 2000 has created all these election guidelines and best practices about here's how you do a canvas, here's how you do a count, here's how you do an audit, here's how you do a re-canvas, here's how you do a recount. And unfortunately, none of these states have abided by these rules and procedures. And people like Matt Brainerd, people like Richard Barris of People's Pundit have found a lot of data that's at least prima facie evidence that there were people who voted who were not qualified to vote. Some cases they were dead. In some cases, they were duplicate votes. And those people who appeared to have voted twice. Uh, in another case, and that mail-in balloting created that possibility, unless it was strictly enforced. 
Uh, people who were uh, managed to vote in different states, people who, who are registered in one state voting in a swing state instead, uh, people who said they were living at a post office box, which was illegal voting. Uh, so you had all of those issues with whether only qualified people voted, 17-year-olds voting in some cases. The, the second category in terms of the mail, the mail-in balloting did only those lawfully cast votes. Well, there we removed a lot of the rules. It used to be you had to request a ballot before it was sent to you. In some states, that wasn't required this time. It used to be you have to have someone witness it to make sure it was you and that you filled it out in secret. Because a big problem with absentee ballots is they're no longer secret ballots, hypothetically. Someone can watch you fill it out. Someone can look at the ballot before they allow it to be sent back in. So it opens the door to ballot uh, buying ballots, opens the door to blackmailing people into voting a certain way, coercing a ballot. Or the biggest concern, somebody else fills out that ballot other than the, than the person who is qualified to vote. Um, the one of the ways we protected against that was someone had to notarize who was a witness who said, okay, I saw them fill it out in private. No one else saw the ballot. I saw them put it in the envelope, seal it, sign it, et cetera. We removed that requirement in most of the states. We, uh, we removed the requirement that it go through the mail. They could just drop it off at a drop box. Well, that creates ballot harvesting opportunities. That's illegal in most states other than California. Um, so the question was, you know, were these both votes lawfully cast in a secret manner by the person qualified to vote? And there are ways, the only way we had to check that was, was signature matches. And unfortunately, nobody, none of the states that are in contest allowed a real signature match to occur. They did a small sample in Arizona, and there they found the Democrats' own experts said 11% of the ballots don't match the, the envelopes, don't match the signature on file. And the court's excuse for, and that would mean that there were, you know, about eight, nine percent of the vote in Arizona, if you use that as a legitimate, statistically significant sample, and the court was the one that created that uh, measurement for a statistically significant sample, means that there were more votes cast that were illegally cast than the margin of victory by a ratio of about 30x. So uh, yet the, what happened is the court changed the views about the standard. The court said, no, you have to prove forgery. Well, in a signature match context, you could never prove forgery because you don't have enough specimens of signatures. So he created an impossible burden. And so this one check on whether a ballot was lawfully cast, signature matches was also effectively thrown out in a lot of places. Um, and so then the third question was the ballot, ballot was the count of the ballot done. That's why we have poll watchers and observers so they can observe the process and make sure it's being done correctly. Well, they kicked them out or excluded them or did other things in all the key swing states. And then the court's reaction to it was like the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Oh, well, the right to observe is not a meaningful right to observe. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So the, the, the problem that I have is the three measurements of checking an honest vote were not done in this election. Almost all the courts are saying we're not going to hear the case. Those a standing or ripeness or mootness or latches or whatever the excuse of the day is. I think the courts have this like excuse of the day little box next to their uh, to their to their to their little chambers, and they just go through and pull out which one they're going to use today to not rule on elections. And I think that's bad for the court systems and bad for America. Uh, but I I think uh, by the end of this process, Joe Biden is likely to be the inaugurated president. Now. Trump still has the Congress can still object. In 1876, Congress objected because there were different electors. There's also been Republican electors are going to send their electors of votes to Congress. Vice President Pence could have a role. So the uh, I don't think he'll exercise it. But hypothetically, the vice president can pick a different group of electors uh, if, if two different groups of electors have been sent to the Congress. 
because he's the one who, quote, counts the electors in front of Congress. Um, so the uh, uh, and then the, the House and the Senate can each object the uh, to the electors. If they join together, they can have a hearing on whether certain electors should be allowed to be voted on. Uh, it's unlikely that remedy is going to be in, uh, enforced in this election. I kind of wish it would be, even if it went to Biden at the end, because I would like our constitutional process for deciding election contests to stay in place. But the practical reality is they haven't meaningfully enforced it since 1876. So I think that about half the country will always believe this election was stolen. And part of the reason for that will be that election officials in the courts did not have a fair hearing or a fair trial for those who wanted their questions answered. Uh, Mr. Barnes, it's too much to unpack, so <laughs> we'll, we'll do it gradually. So uh, first part is whether there was actually election fraud. And I guess my second part would be whether that fraud, let's say it exists, is actually statistically significant enough to, to actually turn over the margin for, for the election result to change. And it seems to me that both cases aren't really happening based on what I've been reading. So, so for example, um, uh, what Trump repeatedly says that dead people voted in Pennsylvania, uh, repeating the false, like, 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 even he was saying this last week and such and so on. So, but Trump's lawyers conceded in another lawsuit, I, th I think, uh, in Bucks County and, and there's in Gettysburg that, that basically there was no evidence that a ballot was cast by a deceased person. Even the Republican state legislators confirmed that. And there's, I guess, multiple evidence that people like um, compiled uh, based on county by county, basically saying, here, look, the GOP uh, election official is saying there's no fraud. Look, here is another case that was basically thrown out because it doesn't have ground. So um, I, I felt like America did go through the process of actually, let's see how, how the suits will, will, lawsuits will go out. And what played out was that there was no evidence of massive fraud that would overturn the, the election. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to understand so this. Yeah, there's two different parts there. One is I think the, the media has done a good job of framing the narrative as being was there or was there not sufficient election fraud to change the election outcome. Legally, that's not the standard. The question is, were there more uh, votes cast that were not lawfully cast, that either because the person wasn't lawfully qualified to cast it, because the method in which it was cast was not consistent with the legal requirements, or it wasn't lawfully counted? And the so that's and, and that doesn't require fraud or forgery or anything else. That just means, hey, this person registered in another state so they could no longer vote here. They may not have known that, uh, but the but that makes their vote no longer a lawful ballot. And so uh, uh, same with mail in balloting. If their signature didn't match, their vote was no longer lawful, even if it was they who signed it, because that just happens to be the way we govern mail in balloting. Uh, just like you have to show up on the polls on time to vote in person, you have to your signature has to match your signature on file in order for your vote to count or to be cast. And then in terms of the counting process, they're supposed to allow monitoring to occur at all uh, material times uh, that such that they can actually see that the ballot counting is done correctly. In all of the counties and states of contested areas, some failure happened at one or all three of those uh, areas. What happened in the courts is, the courts have almost exclusively said that they won't hear the dispute. So it's like what happened with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, didn't say that Texas allegations were wrong. They said it doesn't matter whether they're true or not. We, we say you don't have standing. 
And this has been the ruling in almost all the cases. They've said you, Trump, even the Trump campaign, they've said you don't have standing. Right, because if there's not, not that much evidence, there shouldn't be standing, right? So mm. Standing is a procedural trick. So we invented it in the 1920s. So courts dockets were getting really busy. So they decided, you know what? We're going to say, yeah, you may have a case, but you're not the one to bring it. And we're going to call it standing. And we're going to say we're interpreting the cases or controversies clause within the U.S. Constitution to require that there not just be a case or a controversy, but that you be the right person to bring that case or controversy to us. Uh, I think standing is a bunch of garbage. They do this in election cases all the time. Here's how I used to put it. You don't have standing. To, it's not ripe in spring. You don't have standing in summer. And it's either latches or moot by winter. So no matter uh, by latches by by fall, uh, moot by winter. So magically, they never have to take your case or hear your controversy. And the courts invent it and they go back and forth on this. Like you, uh, you give me any judge, any court in the country, and I'll find somewhere where they've contradicted themselves about the application of standing. What standing really is, is the court saying we don't want to expend our political capital to get involved in the middle of this mess. Go somewhere else for remedy. Uh, that's what it really and that's what's happening in almost all the election disputes. And I don't think it's healthy. Like, I think if one of them would have scheduled a one week trial, present the evidence, allow cross-examination, allow the other evidence, people would have felt much more satisfied with the outcome, even if they disagreed with, with, with whatever ruling the judge made. They'd have been like, ah, OK, I had my day in court uh, going back to like why it's valuable to let anybody speak. It's reflecting their humanitarianism. I think the same thing about letting people have their day in court. Let them see. Let them speak their mind. Let them see the. Let them see it cross-examined. Let them see people judge the evidence, and all these courts are are coming to a wide range of excuses as to why they can't do that. And they're saying, "Well, I can't do it for this reason or that reason." And the media is interpreting it as, "Oh, court heard the evidence and rejected it." None of these courts have heard the evidence. So, so uh, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, did the whole press conference presenting it, and even went to a different states to testify, and and. and um, I mean, there were a lot of memes basically making fun of him and, and, and his witnesses. We won't go there. But did, did you feel like his evidence were, were solid? Did, did you see? I think there's different. Co some of that evidence was stronger and some of it was weaker. The strongest evidence out there for people who want to look into it is from Matt Brainerd. Matt Brainerd did a statistically significant sample of enough states with backed up with documentation and phone surveys and the like to look at how many people may have illegally voted in the, in the key swing states. And I have not seen a effective refutation of his evidence so far. Um, there's been partial uh, rejection of certain subcomponents of it, but not in mass. But my view has always been the same. My view has been that there is no way that if they would have used the same signature match standards they use for nominating petitions on these mail-in ballots, there's no way there's not more illegally cast ballots than the margin of victory. Um, now, that doesn't mean necessarily that Trump won. The way that constitutionally works is under the 12th Amendment, you go to the Congress and they vote by state delegation. Uh, now, that favored Trump because Republicans have an edge there, but it's still no guarantee how that would have gone. Ask Andrew Jackson in 1824 how that worked out. Um, so there's an, uh, we put that amendment in after 1800 create, created such a disaster. Uh, and we used it in 1824, didn't fully use it in 1876. In 1876, both houses of Congress just debated whose electors to count. Um, and that went on until 48 hours before Inauguration Day. And back then, Inauguration Day was in March. So my view is, uh, if they would have strictly enforced the election laws on the books, 
then Trump likely wins 2020. So that's one interp- That's one way, not because of election fraud, but just because not enough people's signatures will match. To give people an example, Barack Obama first got elected to the state Senate in Illinois by getting all of his opponents kicked from the ballot on the grounds that their nominating petition signatures didn't match. And the average signature match rejection rate in his race was over 50%. And they did it to Kanye this year in both Illinois and Virginia. Over 20% of his signatures didn't match in those states using strict signature match standards. Just the reality that you have all these new people voting and all their signatures match, not high. So, and I also think there was some degree of fraud. You know, Jimmy Carter, 2005, U.S. Election Assistance Commission, New York Times in 2012 said absentee balloting invites fraud. And it's where fraud is going to come about. And the way you catch it is with strict signature matches when they would never, most of these states didn't do a strict signature match. And all I wanted and all a bunch of other people wanted was, hey, let's just have an independently monitored signature match process so that we can see maybe the signatures do match. When all of the states said, no, 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 we can't do that. That told me, okay, they don't have confidence in their own signature match checks. So I think it wasn't necessarily fraud that tipped the election. I do think the failure to strictly enforce the laws did tip the election. Uh, how important is it to, this is a very, uh, probably a stupid question from a legal perspective, but uh, I will ask it. I mean, I don't have a law degree, so it's very hard for me to understand the nitty gritty, but um, some people would say, look at the popular vote and, and look at how people cast the ballot. Sure, it might be late, an hour late. Sure, it might be that the signature didn't match that. But if there's no mass election fraud, it is a representation of the will of the people. And shouldn't the Democratic will be reflected in the election of Joseph Biden? Uh, it, technically, that's just not our constitutional process. So the constitutional process is for electors to the presidency, it's the state legislatures write the rules. And, and, what, and, those, and they decide who's qualified to vote. They decide what ballot is lawfully cast. And they decide how the ballots are to be counted. And the rules for all three just weren't enforced by the executive branches in those, in those swing states. Now, their view would be your argument. They would say, look, we're just trying to get the best expression of the will of the people. And I understand that, but that was actually rejected at the time of the Constitutional Convention. They could have said, we're going to, they actually thought about, let's have just a national vote. They actually, in fact, the most debated clause in the entire Constitution was the electors clause for the presidency, because it's the one place that's going to govern everybody. And back then, they were terrified of the power of the presidency. That was a totally new office. They were used to monarchical rule. They were afraid the president would get co-opted. They were afraid the president would try to become a king. And so and they were and it was the one office that governed the whole country, unlike, say, House members or senators that are only representing their state in a national branch of power. This one guy got to govern everybody. And maybe someday would be one woman, but at the time was one was one man. And so they were paranoid about how to pick them. And they decided we're not going to do a national vote. We're not going to do a statewide vote. We're, we're not going to allow the states to determine on their own who they how they pick the president. We're going to say you state legislatures, because you're the closest you're, you're, a, you're a branch of government that's closest to the people. So it was a hybrid solution of a little D Democratic solution and a little R Republican solution. So we're going to let you, the state legislatures, you choose how the presidential electors are going to be chosen. And what happened in this election is we just decided to scrap that. A bunch of executive branch officials decided that they thought the will of the people was better represented by different rules than the ones the state legislatures passed. The problem is that's just not constitutional, The but it may not matter 
because as they say in Mexico, constitution made of paper, blade made of steel. And the reality is if the Supreme Court doesn't take it up, then there's no enforcement mechanism for the electors clause. And but the political argument is the one you made. That's why they did what they did. They didn't do it out of a fraudulent intent. They believed they knew better than the state legislatures how to make sure the will of the people was represented in this election. The problem is they were not the constitutionally chosen uh, agents of choosing the presidential election. Okay, uh, again, <laughs> a lot for me to, to understand and digest even after this interview, but uh, I, I guess just to make sure I understand and characterize your, your viewpoint fairly. It's not saying there's systemically organized fraud per se, but if you throw out the ballots that have irregularities, it should be statistically significant enough to sway the election towards Trump's favor in swing states. Really? I, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I that's why they basically needed the, the whole theor theoretical goal of mass mail-in balloting was Democrats believed they could substitute for their enthusiasm gap problems with mass mail-in balloting. And the question is whether that, but my, the criticism by people was, uh, by people who have done a lot of election litigation like I have, was there's no way you can get the signatures to match at a significant enough rate. Uh, you're going to need the signature match enforcement not to happen because just people's natural instinct is to change their signatures. People get married and change their signatures and they exclude when well, I represent a bunch of third parties and independents. All they don't care about those excuses when I am like, look, we should represent the will of the people and allow the person to get on the ballot. No, not then. The state officials in the court say, no, 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 Mr. Barnes, the mat the signatures have to strictly match or your person's not on the ballot period. I'm like, okay, if that's a good enough rule to keep people off the ballot, then it's a good enough rule as to determine whether a ballot is lawfully cast. And that's what all the state legislatures in these states said. They said you have to have the signatures match. But all, all of the governors and secretaries of state in these states said, no, we're not going to enforce that this time. And I believe that was the case, but I wasn't sure until in all of these states, we uh, different parts of the Trump team asked for a signature match audit to occur. They wouldn't allow it in any sing a single county in a single swing state. And that's what told. And then the one place where a court ordered it, Arizona, it comes back with a much higher rejection rate. I mean, all you need is for one to two percent of the signatures to not match. And you have more illegally cast ballots than the margin of victory, which should constitutionally send it to the House. The fact they wouldn't allow that match check to occur, except in Arizona. And there was 11 percent, much higher than needed, is a sign of how systemic the problem was. So, so it's saying... Uh, so when, when states have close elections, many will recount the ballots and all of the states with close results in the 2020 presidential race ha have paper records of each vote. So that allow the ability to go back and count each ballot if necessary. Uh, and this process allows for the identification and correction for any mistakes or errors. However, I think um, some member of the election infrastructure go government coordinating council, whatever this committee may be, basically said that they did that. And then after the recount, there was no evidence that any voting system were deleted or lost votes or changed votes or was in any way compromised. So um, I, I guess we're, we're kind of talking across each other. And, and I think even, even the, the, the facts from the left are, 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 are talking across from me because they're essentially saying we've, we did all the recounts. Uh, we, we look at the, the evidence presented by the right. We just didn't think it was significant enough, so we shouldn't do it. And, and you're saying... Um, we, we, in fact, did not seriously consider some of the, the lawsuits brought up by Trump's uh, team 
And had we considered them in a very detailed way, uh, abiding by the legal standards, uh, based on the number we know, it would have flipped the election result. However, what all the all the verification process that has happened so far has been focusing on things where was there a fraud? No, there was no systemic fraud. Was there was the recount a, a right recount? Yes, there was a recount. But that's not the thing that you are arguing for because you're saying there are things about signature checks. There are things that would have flipped the election, but were never actually investigated. And now people on the left are, are essentially saying, look at the evidence that we have done on, on all the recounts, on all the, um, you know, the, the, these parts. And then that has verified the election result. And you're saying that didn't verify anything, basically. Correct. Exactly. Was, <laughs> they were looking at evidence that was not like there was people who are complaining about computers wow. and whatnot, but that was never my position. Wow. My, I didn't have a problem with that aspect. Now, I'm not a big fan of having a lot of electronic machinery. I like the old school paper ballots, the way they still do it in the UK. I mean, I love the the sort of uh, the pageantry of the Brexit vote where you had all these people walk in and they have these big boxes with the paper ballots and they unload them and they all sit there and count them in front of everybody. I thought that was great drama, great, you know, just a great way to do it, to reaffirm people's confidence in elections. And instead here we do it in secret after midnight and we do it with machines. I mean, where, why do they come up with these names? It's like, we started this election with a, uh, an app called shadow in the Iowa caucuses that managed to go AWOL. And we finished with an app called dominion. It's like, I mean, can, can we come up with at least better names than, than, than these kind of names? But putting that aside, my view was always that the method in which the signatures came in was the priority issue. The second was verifying only lawfully qualified people voted. And third, making sure we had monitoring for the count of the ballots. And the, and the big one was the signature matches on the mail-in ballots. And that just never occurred. They, they wouldn't allow any independent confirmation, wouldn't allow any – the people in Georgia claim they did it. Uh, but then they wouldn't allow an audit to occur. And I'm like, look, if it happened, just give us a sample so we can look and see if maybe that there is no problem. They, they, were, they wouldn't do it. They, they promised to do so, but it's part of what's supposed to be called the canvas. And when you do a re-canvas, you double check all the signatures. And the reason to have an independent monitor there is that they, it goes back to our motivated reasoning discussion. The partisans have the strongest motive to challenge it. And so the goal is if there's any problem with the signature, a partisan will identify it. Um, the what they did in Arizona it was the Democrats' own expert who said 11% of these signatures just don't match, and the rule is it doesn't. You didn't have to require forgery. It's that the signature doesn't match, the vote can't count. And so if there was only two percent in Arizona, then that meant that the uh, they they the way the election laws work is if there's more votes in doubt than the margin of victory, you throw out the election results. The normal remedy is you do a revote. But in the presidential context, the constitutional remedy is it goes to the House to vote by state delegation. Uh, unfortunately, we never got a fair hearing on those identified issues. And I don't think uh, Trump ever will unless Congress gives it to him. And I want Congress to give it to him for two reasons. One, you know, I, I think that's we should fully know what happened in the election. But at a minimum, at least get let people voice their concerns and see a hearing heard. Right now, what's happening is courts are shooting it down on procedural games that are leaving the Trump supporting side of the equation frustrated. And they increasingly think our court system's kind of a crock. Like for the U.S. Supreme Court to say, ah, you know, maybe you got an issue, but uh, I'm going to play Pontius Pilate, wash my hands and say, I'm not, I, I can't hear this. I can't decide this. I'll let the crowd decide. I'll let the Congress decide. 
I don't think was good for the Supreme Court. Um, but we'll see. So where can we get the data on, on things like uh, signature rechecks? Because I remember uh, Trump tweeted something was, was like uh, there were uh, a lawsuit um, or, or some decree signed by the Georgia Secretary of State with the approval of governor uh, that made it impossible to check and match signatures on ballots and envelopes. And then I think a, uh, Associate Press did a kind of a fact check that says there is nothing in the consent decree that prevents Georgia election clerks from scrutinizing signatures. And, and so, so that was kind of a, a false claim and, and they did the recount. So, so uh, where do we actually get the data of, I'm, I'm just try, really trying to understand the well, nitty gritty here. So, so. Yeah, well, that was the key is the only way to know whether they really did a signature match was to have an independently monitored audit of the signature. So not a recount, a recount doesn't do the signature no. match per se. Yeah, I see. Exactly. So now you, he, the secretary of state said he was going to, he said, I'm going to do a recount, a re-canvas, and an audit all at the same time. And he, I was in the room with his legal representatives when he specifically promised me he was going to do a signature match check. Because my argument to them down there is like, look, maybe there's no problem. If there's no problem, just confirm there's no problem. The, I was like, just do an audit. And then at least half of Trump's voter base will be like, okay, you know, maybe we don't like the way the election rules worked, but we lost within the rules. We'll fix it next time rather than thinking it got stolen from them. And they, and they said, yeah, you're right. We'll do a signature match audit. We'll include that in the process. We'll do a, not only a recount, we'll do a re-canvas and an audit at the same time. People can look it up on NBC, he said it publicly. And then two days later, he lets me know and my team know, oh, we're not going to allow the signature match check to occur. And that's why I said, I said, you do realize this increases suspicion, right? I was like, if, there's, if, if I think something's weird with the books, of a publicly traded company and I asked to look at the books and they're like, Oh yeah, sure. And then they're like, now we've looked at the books. We can't let you look at the books. That's going to increase suspicion, not decrease suspicion. Uh, but unfortunately that's how they've all done it. And so like in Pennsylvania, that's what they've done in Michigan. That's what they did in Arizona. Like I said, they only allowed a small sample and they changed the rules uh, in Nevada. They wouldn't allow a sampling to even happen. So that's, it's like, I think they all know there's probably some examples that look really bad. Right. Like you have somebody whose signature on their voter file is in cursive and the ballot that came in through the mail is in block print, you know, something like that, which there can be explanations for, but just not that ballot can be lawfully cast. Uh, I, there must be something in there that looks bad for them, because the other thing that it was all of these states can print the ballots for the whole world to see. And this would solve a lot of the problems. You, you could get rid of all of the allegations about machines miscounting the ballots by just publishing to the world. Here's all the ballots because they're all digitized and scanned. The Georgia Secretary of State promised he would do that two years ago when he wrote a big check to the, the, the Dominion companies. He said, look, one great advantage of this is now we can print the ballots to the world. And now none of them will print any of the ballots to the world. And it's like, do you not realize you're adding to suspicion here of the people that are in this? So it's I think how we've handled this election contest has not been ideal at all. Mr. Barnes, what, what has been your involvement uh, in this process? I haven't, I, I should have asked you from, from the onset. You, you said you were down there in Georgia, you were you communicating with them? Yeah, the, the president asked me to, uh, to help out. And so I helped out. And so he asked me to go to Georgia, also to look at Pennsylvania. And so when I laid it out, what I told him was, if this election is on the up and up, then they'll do a signature match audit. I was like, I was like, is that then, you know, they just change the rules and they, you know, maybe there's, we have a political argument about they shouldn't have changed the rules to allow all these ballots to be sent by mail, but putting, but if the signature match audit, if they allow that to happen and it comes back fine, 
then you know that that means that you they stole it from you fair and square uh, as they might say wow. i said if they don't allow the signature match <laughs> match audits to occur uh then they know they have a problem and so wow. i think trump would have backed off and would have said hey fine if they would have given him a signature match audit he was he, really? well, he was game for that yeah he was he, like okay really Oh, absolutely. He, he was ready to move on. Trump, uh, like people think Trump gets depressed and angry. None of that is accurate. He was already planning ahead. He's like, OK, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And none of this stuff bothers him that much. Well, what's the behind the scene kind of conversation? You, you, you think his, he's ready to move on? His legal team. Were oh, ready absolutely. And he was ready to then. He was like he wanted this resolved one way or another within a week. And it was and this was back at the very beginning, back in November. And the his view was, hey, let, let, let's see what let's move on. But he, but his point was, he goes, I want to know whether they broke the rules or not. He goes, I, I get that they changed the rules to make it easier for them. I want to know, did they break the rules? And I said, there's one way for you to know. Just ask for a signature match audit. And if they give you a signature match audit, then, and it comes back, the results show they didn't break the rules, then okay, they just changed the rules. And he's like, fine, I'll move on. And it's like, but if they don't, then you're going to know they weren't on the up and up. And when I, personally, I was shocked. I thought at least some counties and some states would give it. None of them would. Nevada wouldn't, Arizona wouldn't, Michigan wouldn't, Pennsylvania wouldn't, and even Georgia, Republican officials wouldn't. They kept telling me the election is fine. I'm like, well, let me just look at a few signatures then. And they're like, oh, yeah. And then they came back, oh, no, we really can't do that. And they would slow walk it and slow play it. And the reason why the president believes this election was stolen above any other reason is because none of the counties or states would allow a signature match audit to occur. Had they done so, we wouldn't be here right now. You, you think that's the fun, fundamental, not, not because, so we're not saying that it's uh, uh, so widespread or some conspiracy by the Biden campaign. We're not saying that it's been no. uh, uh, stolen because the, 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 the millions of mailing. Okay. Um, I think I understand the argument now. Now here's my puzzle, my, my ultimate puzzle. How come I don't hear about any of this in terms of like, uh, so um, maybe it's because the gated institution narratives, maybe the leftist medias are suppressing this, but I, I don't even hear really good arguments from right-wing media. For example, I, I subscribe to a newsletter called The Writing, which is the, every morning they send, send you, the subscribers, a list of far-right, uh, right-wing media headlines. Just to, I, I just read that to, to get the spectrum, to get the idea of what's going on. But, but I read some of those articles. It's, it's, it's not logical. It's convoluted. They don't have that, that many good facts. I, I don't know what the president is really thinking. I mean, if I watch anything from CNN or MSNBC or uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah or read The New York Times or any even centrist kind of organizations, they all seem to have proven that there is no election fraud and, and a lot of the Trump's claims were baseless. So it almost seems that the people who vouch for Trump are doing themselves a dis disservice by not providing the the, the the true arguments, or or somehow they provided the true arguments that like what you're doing, but it but it get refracted through some kind of lens that, that nobody on the left would actually try to hear that out. Uh, and this is before even let's let's talk about the ideological biases. This, this is before that people on the left if this misses you. It's just we didn't even know this was the argument. Right. I mean, I think half of it is the gated institutional narrative so that when developments happen, like the Arizona development where a Democratic expert came back and said 11 percent of the signatures are in a statistically significant sample did not match. 
it got absolutely, it completely got blacked out of institutional coverage. That that story, other than me trying to scream about it to people, no major coverage. But the other key component was a really what I think was a well done disinformation campaign by the QAnon linked elements, where Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood jumped on stuff that was never going to be true, but it allowed the Trump's position to be caricatured when it was never really Trump's position. They sold and, the seed for for misinformation. And it's the easiest attraction. It's the easiest place to yeah. go. If you if you're mad about the election, just come up with a story that has all of Trump's enemies on it conspiring. And that's that's the story people are going to be naturally drawn to. They like the my story of just, hey, there was technical legal noncompliance that legally can change the con- election. That's that that doesn't have big sex appeal. It doesn't have foreign governments and secret dictators and secret meetings. And it doesn't somehow combine the ghost of Hugo Chavez with the ghost of Fidel Castro. And you get to throw in George Soros as a bonus. You know, my story doesn't have that in it. My story has a bunch of election officials decided they knew better than legislatures how to enforce the how to reflect the will of the people. That just wasn't constitutional. It's a very simple argument, but it doesn't have the big sex appeal of, you know, computers and machines and hacking and secret servers and CIA and and people are, you know, it doesn't have any of that in it. And so consequently, in the in the court of public opinion on the right, my story got suppressed. And the story that dominates is the crazy story that often can be easily disproven. You know, Dominion's not a foreign-owned company. Now, who does own Dominion is kind of interesting. It's the heart of Washington and Wall Street. It's the ex ex members of the Carlisle Group and Cerebrus, and who have their own. Who read like a Syriana script. I mean, when you read, when you go to the history of, like, if you want to understand where Syriana came from as a movie, study the history of the Carlisle Group or Cerebrus, and you'll get fascinating connections. But it has nothing to do with. You know, Chinese and but, Hong but, Kong and, but this was and a, Swiss uh, banks or any of that. Don't you think this is somewhat inevitable, Mr. Yes, Barnes? Yes, that's just right. It, it was it was a it was a perfectly tailored disinformation campaign yes. that to an audience that's going to eat and this always happens. I mean, I mean, really since nineteen sixty, the other side has always thought the election was stolen. This is really not that new. Yeah. Uh, What's different here is the degree of legal controversy about it. Especially with the mail-in ballots. Right. This year, just it's like the regime changing event. Exactly. That that we had this flood. The the one thing in in 2012, the New York Times said, was our greatest risk is if we ever do massive mail-in ballot. Now they forgot that in 2020. It's, it's, I'm sure they wish they could get rid of the Wayback Archive so they could bury that article. Because what it was in 2012, Obama's camp, was worried that Romney was going to try to use mail-in balloting to steal the election. And that's why the New York Times was like, mail-in balloting is bad, bad, bad. Absentee balloting is scary, scary, scary. Uh, things like granny farming, they have all the election experts. And it, and that, and it has been historically true. The reason is because it's not a secret ballot, there's always risk with absentee ballots. Because it, the ballot doesn't get filled out right there, the chain of custody of the ballot is always a potential problem. Um, the But we just amplified those risks off the charts in this election. Uh, and then we didn't enforce the law. But yeah, the, it's the nature of the it's where the court of public opinion, the court of law interact. And I was one of the people calling out Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood right away saying this is a bogus story. Don't pursue this. This is a disinformation campaign. You're going to hurt Trump's cause, not help it. But, you know, they were busy on TV every night. So why, why are they going to change course? Uh, and, you know, they're, they're heroes in their own story. Uh, and, 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 the, and the story keeps getting you know, now all of a sudden, every election in the last 50 years was manipulated. This is not good evidence and good theories to go down. There are 
they're creating a straw man that makes it easy for Trump's critics to knock down when these aren't even really Trump's legal arguments, because I was one of the key people involved in crafting those arguments like the Georgia election contest. People can read Trump's filing. It has nothing about machines, but it has over 100 affidavits attached to it of problems (laughs) with matches, problems with monitoring, problems with voters being registered that weren't qualified. It goes into great detail. And the way the court is handling it down there is she won't schedule a hearing. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it's and the media total blackout of the case because they love the Powell Wood stuff because that's easy to knock down. Right. Case dismissed. No evidence presented, et cetera. While the good arguments of Trump's election contest are never getting heard, even by the courts or by the court of public opinion because of what Powell and Wood did. And you're right. The big key for Powell and Wood is they dominated media on the right. Media on the right race to cover them. They did themselves a disservice, right? They yes, really completely. did. Yes, completely. And, but and, what and is this? It's, it, it's good for clicks. You know, I mean, I mean, this is going to, uh, hey, you combine China <laughs> and Soros and right. Biden and all that, the that's going to get you a million clicks. Yeah. You know, Barnes has technical view about how election was non-compliant. <laughs> that's going to get you 10 views. That's uh, that's always how, 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 how things kind of, kind of I, I guess President Trump probably also did himself a disservice by, I don't know. Well, somebody. he was willing to listen to everybody. What opened his door to the scope of things is when they when they wouldn't come back with a signature audit. He was like, well, who knows how many different ways than they stole it? That's what led him down that path. All it's right. all of a sudden he began to doubt the whole thing. If they would have given him a signature audit based on my conversations with him and it came back clean, he would have he would have conceded two weeks ago. Uh, it was when they didn't, he was like, okay, I don't trust this system. And then he finds out Barr sat on evidence related to Biden and all. And he's like, so all these people who are supposed to be helping me weren't really helping me. And he starts to have skepticism about the whole system. But, but people look at him as, oh, he is now, you know, sabotaging Barr because Barr did the right thing. And then right. that person did the right thing. So you just cannot reconcile the views anymore. No, no, exactly. And I think that uh, and and that's where the courts could have had a really good role. The courts could have done what they're designed to do. Let's hear the evidence. Let's decide it. Let's show what's strong. Let's show what's weak. But my guess, once they wouldn't give me a signature match audit in any of these states, I was like, we'll never get a fair hearing because they think there's something we're going to find in there that looks bad for them. And that will be a smoking gun kind of evidence, at least by uh, image. And that's why I think they went their path. I think they, they realized they didn't strictly comply with the rules, but they couldn't have the world focused on that fact. Uh, and, you know, the disinformation campaign did as much favor for them as anything. So, Mr. Barnes, you would say, so when you met with Mr. Trump and when you uh, crafted those, this whole strategy, I mean, personally, you, you, you are not a partisan person, right? So, so you, you don't really care about Republicans. Or so um, if you, I guess my, my, my question was, do you think Trump or his legal team were acting in good faith? I, well, was here's part of the problem that well, most of the people that were supposed to be helping Trump as his own lawyers were lawyers for some of these election officials that would be put in the middle of this. So they had conflicts from day one and they didn't disclose these conflicts and they didn't deal with it. So how are you going to attack a secretary of state for not really enforcing signature rules if you're really representing that, sign- that secretary of state and, and they're your ongoing client? So uh, that's that's like Trump. I think Trump was dis- was betrayed by a wide range of lawyers around him. And it, it's what accelerated this. It's what uh, led Trump to have greater doubts about everything related to this, because he's seeing, you know, all these people that are supposedly on his side taking actions that undermined him. 
And I think and then when the election officials, including Republican election officials, say, no, you can't look at the ballots and you can't look at the signatures. It was like, okay, there's something wrong here. And so and he spent four years with them spreading every crazy conspiracy theory known to man about the guy. Uh, So, you know, if you'd been through that, your view of the system would be deeply skeptical and understandably so. I see. Um, so I guess the, the last fundamental question I have about this, this topic um, would just be, I, th- there seems to be this irreconcilable gap between the left's understanding of the issue and, and the rights. And um, if we take away all the noises, uh, whether it's misinformation campaign, whether it's this, it seems that the two sides have a chance to come together, but the, the noise certainly did not help. But, but even without the noise, it just seems that we're going down a path where, where the left, everything that's being said on the left, uh, basically mentions nothing what you just told me. And they, they destroyed Trump's arguments, misinformation and whatever, rightfully so. But they, they picked out a certain set of uh, great destroying arguments. They basically completely destroyed it. But the thing is, people on the right, this is what I find fascinating, is that they can always find a set of facts that, that somehow works. Like when I listen to Ben Shapiro's podcast, I'm like, this guy is a brilliant guy in the sense that he can, he justifies himself in a very logical way, but, but then uh, often they're blowing up a speckle of truth to be something greater or often it, it did not seem to be very helpful and, and such and so on. So that's why I, I'm always reading those conservative arguments that, that I, I see the point but I have a very hard time being convinced. And I think a lot of my very open-minded liberal friends are, are like that. So, so, what do you think of this, I guess? I think it's just a growing problem. I think that uh, tribalism is, is you know, a great book on this is The Big Sort. And it explains like how there, there, there's a motivation to be more radical. Like if you read The Big Sort, you could know which narrative would take hold post-election. Would Barnes's technical issue take hold or would Wood and Powell's crazy conspiracy take hold? It was going to be, if you read The Big Sort, the more extreme you are, the more attention you get, the more validation you get. There's a nature of tribalism once it takes over people's mental approaches, mindset approaches, that inevitably and inescapably leads to worse tribalism uh, just due to its nature. So I think what where the intellectual dark web is right is the way to avoid the problem of tribalism is to continue to allow the most voices to be heard and for the most people to listen to the most voices from the widest range of perspectives, which is exactly the opposite of the safe space censorship route that we're on. Are you optimistic or, or at all or pessimistic about the, where we were headed? Well, here I, I share Trump's perspective, which Trump is always optimistic. There's no such thing as obstacles. They're just something to overcome. <laughs> That's it, which is it's a crazy perspective. He gets totally, totally. It doesn't matter how irrational it is to think that something's going to happen. He's like, yeah, we can do this. Uh, and I, I think there's brilliance in it. Because the greatest changes happen by people who are willing to believe totally irrational things that they can change the world. And by simply believing it as such, they actually help change the world. You know, you're Fidel Castro. You're hanging out with eight buddies in the, in the Sierra Ma- Ma- uh, Madre Mountains. And you think you're going to run the country for the next 60 years? That was not a sane position for him to have in 1954. And yet by 1960, he would make it true for the next 60 years. So there's some great truth to permanent optimism. Uh, And so that's why I'll always be on the optimistic side, even when objective evidence might say that's not the most likely outcome. 
I guess looking back at this election season, uh, so I, so you, you, I think your podcast done with Jordan Belfort was uh, done before the election took place. I mean, you, you and I actually, we, we scheduled this interview to happen in, back in October, right, well, long before this happened. And then this whole thing ha- happened and it evolved in this way. Look, looking back at their experience in the past two to three months, uh, I guess, what, what were your, some of your takeaways? Uh, I guess, did, did it make you look at the country in a, in a new light in, in some way that you didn't previously foresee? I mean, 2020 is definitely the craziest year ever. I mean, for me, the uh, and it's fast. It's fascinating times to be alive. We've never had a populist outsider uh, get elected president as happened with Trump. You know, I got to make money betting on it. So it was like a double bonus, Uh, you know, defending aspects of uh, the rule of law in the Trump era has been fascinating because I've come at it more from a pro Trump populist perspective. Uh, the, I've seen the attacks on Trump as more threatening to the rule of law than anything Trump did. Uh, I found Russiagate disturbing and the rest. So I think, uh, it, but it's mostly gone on the path I thought it would go. Uh, and I think that you know, the other aspects of the election that were a surprise in the sense, I didn't think that many mail-in ballots would really come in. I, well, I was about, I, I said Trump would win 74 million votes and I nailed that almost to the, to the number. Uh, but I thought Biden would win around 74 to 75 million votes. He added 5 million more and almost and, and all of those were mail in ballots and and how those were cast and whether they were lawfully cast will always be probably an open historical question, because I don't think we'll ever actually get a signature match out in this election. Um, and so for all that, it, but it's, it's as expected. So there's you know troublesome signs in the culture. Uh, at favoring safe space, censorious approaches to discussion and dialogue. But there's also positive signs. You know, the when you have people like the Weinstein brothers on the left uh, and Rogan, who's more on the left, uh, allied uh, with defending the free speech rights of an Alex Jones or others, then we're, go- we're on that's on the right path to protecting the American experiment and the human experiment of let's let free speech, free thought and free ideas uh, be protected for an entire nation. And we were the first to really do so. And I still think that our traditions will hold up. In the end, there's more good people who want to do good than bad people who want to do harm. And that's always the key to a good outcome in the end. I guess another uh, quick question before we wrap up about you mentioned free speech. And we've been talking about this throughout this episode. Uh, One free speech case that I was uh, particularly, I guess, personally learned about uh, was uh, this person, artist, Dred Scott. I don't know if you heard of him, uh, who... uh, basically desecrated, it burned the American flag as uh, in front of the Supreme Court as his art installation. So he came to Princeton, I think when I was a freshman or, or sophomore, I forgot to, to give a talk. And I was, I got to meet him and, and, and talk to him about this. And he, it seems that that was back in uh, uh, the, the first H.W. Bush times. And uh, the right was an outcry. How can you burn the flag? That's absurd. That's, and, and, and the left was, was more like, okay, let's support this, this man because that's free speech. And the Supreme Court eventually ruled that it's not, it's, it would be unlawful to ban uh, desecrating the flag because you should have free speech there. But the discourse on free speech has shifted dramatically over the, I would say, 20, 30 years. And today it's people on the, on the right somehow advocating for this thing. And I, I, so I don't know. Do, do you see similarities between those, those two cases? Would you have supported Dred Scott? And, and, and- oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, when I, there's a young 14-year-old, Robert E. Barnes, wrote a letter to the editor of the Chattanooga News uh, <laughs> Free Press, uh, arguing that uh, if you don't have the right to burn the flag, you don't have the right to free speech, for which I got some hate letters in the mail. The, uh, so my view has always been that the 
Speech is something that we should always protect because sooner or later they'll come for your speech. Uh, sooner or later, your speech will be disfavored. Sooner or later, your ideas will be dis, uh, will be considered heretical. Uh, and we should uh, we just as we stop burning witches, uh, literally, we shouldn't do so figuratively in the court in the in the digital public square. So I'm still confident that enough people down deep really, and I think the ordinary American believes in it. I think you're every day you, you go you talk to some guy at a bar in Iowa. He may not like burning the flag, but if you talk to him long enough, he'll say, "Yeah, you know that that should be something you have a right to do." Because down deep, they believe in free speech more than they believe in anything else in the in the censorship of speech. So I think the heart and conscience of mind. It's like the old saying is. The reason during when people were opposing the inquisitional era church, they said, well, there's two schools of learning they can never close the archives of nature and the rights of man. And their argument was our own conscience and our own ability to see the world around us will always be the restraint on bad people who want to close that off to the rest of us. Wow. Wow. Very powerful. Hopefully we will continue down the, the path towards progress and, and free speech. I, so uh, the name of our show is uh, Policy Punchline. So I guess the last question I will ask you is what would your punchline be for, for uh, anything we've talked about today? We, we talked for two and a half hours. It's probably the longest interview I've done. So the, uh, Just that you know, free speech is worth fighting for because it's the foundation of every other freedom we have in terms of thought, ideas, accuracy, truth, or justice. So the, uh, it, it was good enough for we need to return to the days of the tavern era, colonial era, where we sat around listening to new and creative and different ideas, because that openness, that willingness to hear them is what led to a little book by Thomas Paine to be read that led to an American revolution that changed the whole world. So it's uh, the openness to ideas is the key to changing the world. So we must remain open to those ideas if we want to change the world. Well, thank you so much again, Mr. Barnes. How can people uh, learn more about your work, follow you, uh... Sure. Yeah. The, I'm still on Twitter for the time being uh, at uh, Barnes underscore law, B-A-R-N-E-S. Uh, and I've created a, a board with another lawyer from uh, Canada who's big on trying to create open discussion and dialogue called it's at Viva uh, Barnes law dot locals dot com founded by Dave Rubin to create a technolo technological platform to support communities of conversation, convivial conversation, but uncensored conversation. And so people can find me there, too. Awesome. Thank you again for, for joining me for this uh, uh, conversation. And well, that was our interview with uh, Mr. Robert Barnes. We had a fascinating conversation from free speech to the Alex Jones case, what it was like to defend him, uh, whether it was justified to ban him from social media. We talked about Section 230. We talked about uh, the, the election fraud and, and uh, what, what happened there. What was the nitty gritty arguments made by the right and the left? Uh, so fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for listening today. You can watch this uh, video on YouTube. Uh, and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, follow us on policypuncher.com. So thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.